Hello, I'm Jeff Lester, and welcome to Wait, What? A comics and pop culture podcast coming to you from the not-so-solitary fortress that is WaitWhatPodcast.com. Today, Graham McMillan and I try our best to overcome depressing times with the help of our good old friends, comic books. Today we discuss Avengers 175 through 200 by David Michelini, John Byrne, George Perez, Dan Green, Stephen Grant, and others. The Multiversity by Grant Morrison, Ivan Rice, and Joe Prado. The Fade Out by Ed Brubaker and Sean Phillips. Little Nemo Return to Slumberland. God is Dead, Book of Acts Alpha. Teen Titans number two, Grayson, Batman and Robin. The Mind Exploder that is Avengers issue 200 and much, much more. Show notes delivered with zeal are now available at waitwhatpodcast.com. We welcome your comments and questions at waitwhatpodcast at gmail.com, and we invite you to look out for us on Twitter, Tumblr, and Patreon. As always, we hope you enjoy, and thank you for listening. Hello. Well, hello. How are you, Jeff? How are you? (laughs) I'm fine, Graham McMillan, although I have to say... It seems like the closest thing we have to an official opening is usually going, Jeff Lester, so therefore allowing us to identify one another to that That's true. We should say this. Hi, Wadewell listeners. I'm Graham McMillan, and I'm one of the two hosts of the Wadewell podcast, which is the podcast you're now listening to. The other host is the gentleman with which I am speaking. He'll introduce himself now. Ah, I have to introduce myself? I, I had to introduce myself. Well, no, you did a great job at it. I was like, let's just keep going. That was so good. Then all you have to do is just say my name and say something nice about me and then maybe start talking about comics and I can order a pizza oh, and then you okay, can fine. follow up with... Okay, okay, fine. Jeez. Back off, Jeff. <laughs> Listeners, I'm back. The person I was just talking to who was just giving me, I think you'll all agree, a pretty unfair hard time. That's Jeff Lester. He's one of the most beautiful men in San Francisco. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. And also, the other host of the Wait What podcast, which, <laughs> reminder, is indeed the podcast you're listening to right now. <laughs> so you've got it nailed down. All we have to do is figure out a way to say that in a natural way every uh, episode. I say, yeah, it, that's... No, but half the fun is that it's not natural. <laughs> Well, okay. I guess that's what I mean. Is I was I a natural, unnatural. So you'll just call me from now every every single day. You call me whether or not we're recording. I'll just be like, "Hi, my name is Graham McMillan." That would be great. Yeah, please, because you never know when it's. You never know. I mean, technically, this time scheduled, you should know, (laughs) know, but you you never know. You never know, Jeff. If you called me on like a Sunday and we had a conversation, and all of a sudden it just went online, I would be pissed. Yeah, I suppose that's true. That would not be cool. Although. Think of it. <laughs> exactly. Wait, what unplugged is now going to happen? Ah, <laughs> uh, that would be. Uh, oh well. Oh well. It, the internet's loss is our gain, or probably vice versa. So, so somebody's loss is somebody's gain. Yes, that's, there we go. That's, that's the way of life. Jeff. Indeed, indeed, Graham McMillan, and boy, no more truth than ever this week. Oh, I, I was going to say, are you like weirdly, not weirdly, I guess, but have you found yourself like incredibly down and incredibly apathetic towards almost everything because of everything that's been going on in the world? Yeah, actually, I guess that's probably a pretty good way to put it. I mean, pretty down, intermittently, just like... 
incredibly angry, like yeah, incensed. Yeah, what yeah. the fuck are you doing? Yeah, angry? exactly, yeah. exactly. So it's yeah, it's been it's been kind of a weird week. You and I swapped some some emails about that, but yeah, with the larger scope of what's going on in the world and some of the things that are not happening as a result of some of the things that are happening no exactly it's it's been so weird i said to you an email that i've had like a crazily busy work week Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and that's really good because Mm -hmm. i think if i just had like a normal work week i would be like distracted by everything that's happening and just completely like i don't know not not able to function properly Mm -hmm. it's actually been oddly because i have been stupidly productive Mm. Um, and it's been really good but when, uh, at the beginning of the week on Monday I found it really hard to get started like I had all these deadlines I had all these things I had to do mm-hmm. but it was it was genuinely hard to be like so listen the country with which you know in which I'm living is kind of a fucking mess Yeah, and you know there are very very serious problems going on and I'm writing about you know Ant-Man Right, right. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Yeah, like yeah, you have the, yeah. you have this cognitive dissonance where you're right. just like, this is nuts. Mm-hmm. Like this, this is this is incredibly um, facile mm-hmm. in in the face of 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 everything that's happening. Yeah. But here's the flip side of that: uh, multiversity, which we're going to talk about soon. Um, I feel I appreciated that so much more. Mm, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and also Doctor Who starts on, sun- on Saturday. Right. And I find myself weirdly clinging on to like, the fact that Multiversity and Doctor Who are both in the same week, I find myself weirdly clinging on to them mm-hmm. because both represent a certain amount of um, optimism uh, and uh, romance mm-hmm. In, mm-hmm. in in face of this, you know, <laughs> nihilistic horror. Right. Right. Uh, and and it really, I I I really do have this sort of, you know, I'm going to clutch these things very very close to my chest. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it'll be interesting to see. Uh, well, it'll be interesting to see what happens with the Doctor Who. But I do feel that um, multiversity is in in at least some ways incredibly timely and appropriate to be reading this week. I think. Oh, uh, yeah, it's multiversity. I I mean. You've seen, I don't know, maybe you haven't seen you, uh, Genius, the Top Cow comic that Mark Barrington and, Mark, uh, and Adam Freeman write? Oh, you know, I downloaded the first issue way back when, when it was when it was part of the contest, and I uh-huh. really enjoyed that first chapter. Oh, yeah. and well, then... So they've been releasing a weekly through, uh, uh, for the last three weeks. Oh, really? Uh, and, and it's going on through the end of the month, I think. Wow. Um, but holy shit, I mean, talk about the most timely comic in the world. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I can just imagine, actually. Um, uh, so, so genius for the people who, who don't know what it is. It is essentially a comic about uh, uh, a young kid. Uh, she's not even that young, but for some reason I, I read her as very young. I read her as... as she's, I get the sense she's supposed to read as under 18. You yeah, know? yeah. I, that was what I was going to say. Like she, I, I read her as like 16, 17. Mm-hmm. But there, there's things in the first issue that make me think that maybe that's not the case. Maybe she's meant to be slightly older. Mm-hmm. Um. But she is, uh, as the title suggests, a strategic genius. Mm-hmm. Um, and she essentially leads uh, the secession from America of a city block mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, in L.A. And it's it's a very... The, the comic is both about 
her doing this and, and, and the gang she's built around her to make this happen and the, the society around her, mm-hmm. but also how the authorities deal with mm-hmm. this happening. Right. And, you know, there, there's, there's obviously racial overtones. Mm-hmm. Uh, she, she's African American. Um, and so, you know, reading, reading that with what's going on in Ferguson mm-hmm. is, yeah, it's, it's weird. It, mm. It's, it's charged in a way that, I mean, there's no way, there's no way that when they were making that book. Right. That they, they would have expected it to be read in the culture that it's being read in now. Cause in many ways it feels like, uh, a magnification. Mm-hmm. Of a lot of things, mm-hmm. but because of what's actually happening on the news, it also feels like this weirdly, not dated, mm-hmm. but some of the extrapolations they make have been outpaced by what's actually happening now. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so it's it's this really strange experience. Mm-hmm. So so what I was going to say is, um, yeah, I think multiversity is very timely, mm-hmm. but genius actually has a beat in terms of the weird. Holy shit, this is incredibly topical. Right. Thing. Right, right. Yeah. I well I, I think that is true. Although it'd be interesting to see as we um uh, at least as we circle back to some of the stuff on multiversity. But yeah, absolutely. I think I mean more that there is a certain degree of well, I don't know. So here's some questions. Should we just start talking about multiversity? There's a couple of different um post topics that I think would be sort of fun to talk about as well as multiversity or should we in the interests of um, and this is something I'll probably have to edit out but I'm going to have to get off the line at six so we'll have to actually be somewhat timely for a change which is good for what? me to know. That, since that's I, amazing! I know, I'm the one who always drags it on forever and ever. Um, oh, you're saying we also have to talk about Avengers. Yes, uh, and part yeah. of me was thinking perhaps we should talk about Avengers uh, through issue 200 or even 201 or whatever. Um, first, because I can't imagine that that, <laughs> I can't imagine that's going to suck up a lot of time in a way, but uh, it might be, I might <laughs> yeah, be good to get out of the way. Let's first. start with Avengers in part because you said I can't imagine it's going to suck up a lot of time because I want to ask you a question. Sure. Was that possibly the dullest 25 issues? Of Amazingly <laughs> dull, isn't it? Like, <laughs> Like, I, like, I was, I was excited, but I was like, wow, I kind of feel that there's going to be very little for Jeff and I to talk about other than, huh, they existed. Cause it's not even like it's bad. When it was Roy Thomas and it was bad, we were like, oh, you know, he has to right. speak some troughs. Right. But when it's David Michelini and for the most part, John Byrne, mm-hmm. uh, and George mm-hmm. Perez. Right. There's this weird level of professionalism, yet yes. utter boredom throughout the entire thing. Completely. Well, there's some really... Right. So for people who've been following us, last time we we talked about, you know, Avengers through about 178 or so. And uh, it's sort of worth talking about in the sense that 166, 177 are the conclusion of Jim Shooter's Corvax slash Michael Saga, in theory, arguably a big deal. Uh, certainly interesting for worth, you know, sort of picking over. Um, but one of the things that's really fascinating is, is that from 178 through 200, as Graham points out, it is by and large uh, David Michelini with John Byrne and George Perez. But what's fascinating to me, a couple of things are that there are, is that it, it is almost... 20 
we're really only talking about 23 issues. A lot of them feel, feel like fill-in issues. Like there's just Oh, God, a- entirely. I mean, this is a sign of how, uh, I don't want to say bad, because they're saying they're not bad. They're entirely fine, but that's just it. They're only fine. Yeah. But here, here's an example of what it is. When you have a three-part story about Red Ronin, the yes. giant robot being controlled by a rogue shields agent who doesn't isn't even a bad guy things just get out of control yeah. and that actually lasts three issues mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah you realize just how inc- how incredibly dull and pointless the whole thing is yeah it's it's really it's a really odd period of the book yeah it really is because that is those three issues are technically you know regular issues but they fe- feel so much like Fill-in issues. There everything, is, everything feels like fill-in. It's, everything it's does. It's so strange. Mm-hmm. Even, even uh, the stuff where you actually technically have, like, no, this is the team. And even when you have, like, George Perez back, it's just like, this feels like a, a recycled warm-over. Now, part of that is, you know, there's there's several different things going on there, from what I can tell. And I don't know if you grok this as well, uh, Graham, but Michelini... Right when he starts in on the book, he gets tapped to write the Avengers pocketbook novel for, um, you know, back when uh, Marvel was had a publishing deal with Bantam, I want to say. And so he's actually writing the Avengers quote unquote novel um, at the time where he's supposed to be taking over the Avengers. So that is why Stephen Grant comes in um, and does scripting um and also why you also get situations where michelini is apparently um kind of dialoguing but the plots are coming from the editor of the book or um jim shooter Shooter. and roger stern yeah and that's the other thing that i think is um a a real fascinating maybe this is part of the 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 just sort of torpor that settles in on this period of avengers is the book is still incre- – it's almost as if Shooter it's never leaves. He's yeah, still he's, there. It, it's – Michelin is really clearly following in the Shooter template. Yep. The only problem is the Shooter template, when it is not a story of this man is incredibly powerful and no one understands him, he is also human. Why do people not realize that incredibly power- people, powerful people are human? There's absolutely nothing there. Right. Right. And yeah. so he's left following a template that is – almost absent yeah yeah and i mean it's not surprising that really um the only storyline that really sticks uh out in the in the memory is the three-part storyline that that leads up and concludes in avengers 200 which is clearly co-plotted by shooter which does once again have the i am an all-powerful dude um you know pity me uh, oh that 200 is, is is stunning and here's the thing i had read 200 in a really long time mm. and then when i read it again i was like oh this is far worse than i imagined it oh yeah but i remember yeah yeah yeah, yeah. i Before, had never read it had always well, heard really? about it no 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 because um, i yeah it's, yeah it's it's okay before we get there i want to say this though mm-hmm. so it's it is a really really boring 20 odd issues yeah what's interesting about it is throughout the majority of that run, mm-hmm. you have the uh, Guy Ritch comes in and limits the membership of the Avengers. Yes. And 
inst- uh, inserts basically uh, tokenism, mm-hmm. which is a really interesting setup that they then proceed to do absolutely nothing with. Yes, there there is an amazingly inconsistent uh, character arcs mm-hmm. in this, mm-hmm. particularly for the Falcon. Yes, who, right. who veers between. Being mad that he's been brought in as a token, yes. not wanting to be in the team, being perfectly fine on the team, mm-hmm. and then being mad again. Right. Well, with, with seemingly no rhyme or reason. Yes. Yeah. And the and the interestingly enough, the reason is, and this is one of the things that I think is fascinating, is Michelini as a writer has very Englehart esque ambitions, and it's actually great. I think it's a relief in many ways that those ambitions sort of get thwarted because the, and the Falcon is a perfect example of this when in letters column, Michelini writes about how he had plans for the Falcon and dealing with this idea of him dealing with being the token because of the, the government mandate. Um, And then Michelini says, I left the book for like seven issues and, and therefore that plot line got sidetracked and he's like, and when I came back to it, you'd already seen all these issues of the Falcon basically just being on the team and it not being a problem. And he's like, so he's like, my storyline was, it, it made no sense to go back to my storyline. So I just had him leave the team and cycled in, you know, whomever. So, yeah. And that, and that is it, but it's the weirdest thing because it's also very odd that he didn't, he was like, my story was done. He wasn't, I can come up with another story from the Falcon. No, 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 no. He, it's true. He was just like, I don't, I don't have another story. Well, and there is a little bit about, I don't know how much longer it's going to go on, but there is a lot of this stuff where it's like, even when Michelini is in theory there or, or whenever anyone in theory has the time to actually do the story that they want to do, um, it's, it's just a goddamn mess. In fact, I was going to say that I f- keep forgetting that it wasn't Michelini. It's Mark Grunwald and Stephen Grant who do the new origin of Quicksilver and Scarlet Witch, which, which is just a huge mistake, kind of. Yes, yes. You know? No, 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 not even kind of. It's a huge mistake. And again, it's an incredibly dull story. Yeah, well, and that's it. Even more than the fact that it's a big mistake, it's un- excruciatingly dull. It's a, I mean, when you compare it to, it is easily by far the most Englehart-esque in its ambitions of, like, let's connect the dots. Let's take the things that were mistakes and see the, you know, figure out a plan that makes them cohere, you know, while telling a story um, it's amazing, like how much it just t- completely misses the way that Englehart used to do it, and have it be entertaining. It is dreary, slud, drudge work. Like, uh, it, it, it's, oh. yeah, it really is. It's it's so amazing. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. The other thing I want to say before we get onto two hundred, because I think we should spend some time talking. Oh, two hundred is definitely the one to talk um, about. Yeah, is. I don't think I'd realized before rereading these how strong an inker and strong both in terms of I like his work, but also how incredibly overpowering an inker Dan Green is. Mm, Dan Green's inks mm-hmm. are with Dan Green over. Uh, it was Sal Buscema who really stuck out to me first. Mm-hmm. Sal Buscema does not look like Sal Buscema in Dan yeah. Green inks. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then when he gets uh, Perez, mm-hmm. it, it's a really interesting thing. He's, he's he. Uh, 
kind of roughs up Perez's work. He does. He does. It Which looks, is really nice. Yeah. Interesting. I kind of thought that the the Perez stuff, a lot of it felt, uh, uh, I don't know, just somehow like a, more unfinished than, than I remembered it being. Like it seemed as if, yeah, I felt like Green was... Um, I think he's a really, really great influence on, say, John Byrne. I think I think those Byrne issues end up looking really quite nice. You know, it's Byrne in his more dynamic phase. Um, but Green also, I think, just sort of brings out, uh, helps Byrne escape the tendency towards sameness that his work can fall into. But unfortunately, by contrast, I sort of feel like, you're right. The strength of what he brings. I actually thought that the George Perez pencils felt kind of samey and generic, uh, especially in some of the, the longer shots or group shots. I kind of felt like there was a little bit of, uh, um, green just really wasn't, wasn't putting it, putting, wasn't really bringing it. So. Oh, I, I see. I, I, I disagree, Jeff. Yes. Uh, and part of it is I don't really like Perez's artwork. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. Uh, and so seeing him genericize Prez makes, and, and with the line work that Green has, mm-hmm. makes it infinitely more attractive to me. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, 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 which I totally see. I totally see. And I can see that it's just sort of a, um, kind of a difference of opinions. Or I just feel yeah, like. I, it... I, think, I think we get mm-hmm. different things from the artwork. So therefore, yeah. when the artwork is. I mean, I think genericize is a really fair way to put it. Mm-hmm. He mm-hmm. takes a lot of Perez out of Perez. Yes. Um, so you, we have different reactions to that. We, yeah, we find exactly. that attractive or less attractive as a result. Yeah, yeah. Whereas, yeah, I definitely, I definitely, we split the difference. Um, you know, the other thing that I think is problematic, uh, you, you mentioned the Falcon. Um, and and despite the fact that Michelini has his excuse, the fact is there is it is unbelievable to me that you have you have Jocasta, the bride of Ultron, seemingly you know patterned off of Janet Van Dyne's uh, personality patterns. She's around for twenty two, twenty three issues, and has nothing to do. Like, yeah, and, and it has to be said, if she's patterned after Jan, I think Kevin Michelini might have forgotten that because she acts nothing like her. Right. Like, right. at all, mm-hmm. in the slightest. No, no, at all. And, and you know, actually, one of the things that I sort of appreciated, and I'm sure it's, it's I, can't, I feel like it's the other shoe is going to drop, is in a way, it's an, it's an interesting parallel to... The vision, except the vision, you know, in terms of like, oh, here's, you know, an android artificial member of the team. Everyone's just going to blindly accept this person as a loyal member of the team, you know, and then the other dime's going to drop. I don't, I don't know what part past 200 that happens or if it happens. I sort of like the fact that everyone just accepts her as like her and she's like, oh, I went and made sandwiches and everyone's like, oh, gee, you're great. You know, I, there's in a way the lack of drama is sort of attractive because there's a few panels where it sort of looks like, you know, the visions acting is, is uh, just everyone's character is a mess during this. The, the vision really does have issues. a very, very strange character arc, which yeah. is yeah. all, out of nowhere. He's like, I have no emotions. Right. And, is why, and Scarlet Witch is like, 
what are you saying? He's like, I have no emotions. And he's like, I've changed my mind. I have emotions. And she's like, no, I got no baby, so I'm going to leave you. And he's like, I have no emotions again. Right? Yeah, exactly. That would be great. It would be so much better if it was a little bit of that sort of something marginally sophisticated, which is like, oh, it's not that I don't have emotions. I basically withdraw and sulk when I'm hurt. Huh, you know what I mean? Like, just something. But as it is, like, the only thing going on with Jocasta is she's like, how you doing, Vision? He's like, I'm not, who cares? I am in a machine with no emotions. And she's like, that hurts me. I'm a machine with no emotions. Yeah, yeah, I do like that Jocasta basically is in these issues to be like, look at these humans to the mission. That's it. That's the rule. Basically. Well, (laughs) to step step on and be like, these humans, I do not understand their emotions. And he's like, none of us do. (laughs) But but that's what happens. There's even... No, that is. That's actually a pretty good recreation. In fact, I would be really happy if I could get it so every time the vision is speaking, it's you doing that vision voice. I'd be (laughs) really happy. That would just be the best. It's like, I need to build a soundboard for that. So um, that would be great. Uh, Yeah, it's, it's, so nobody really has anything like an arc there. I mean, even, even the beast who I feel is a character who has character just kind of gets reduced. Yeah, but it's his character. His character really does get reduced and shtick. And the shtick is very particularly, Mm -hmm. uh, He's a bit wacky. He will sing at inappropriate times, which right. is a whole new thing. Yes. <laughs> he, I don't know. How, he was only just sing. Yeah. Um, and he will do a witty banter during a fight that he will then take back in the next panel. <laughs> but you know what I mean? Like, it's always like, I will jump in your, cause he's always jumping in people's backs as well. Yes. I will jump in your back and be like, ah, bet you can't reach me. And then they will always catch him and throw him. And you will cut to a panel of him being thrown and being like, me and my big mouth. Right. Totally, totally. There's just a lot of, um, it, it's, it's, it, it is, it's shtick. Um, but it, it also sort of has that kind of the, the process of there being, I guess, too many, too many hands on the wheel is it all feels like it's being, it's all on autopilot for so many issues. And what's amazing is, is if you read the letters pages, the people who are putting the issues together are clearly convinced it's the opposite like they do not see oh, no, that they, they, they're, they're like this is uh, we're firing in all cylinders of Andy. yeah totally well and in a way especially when when dave michelini comes out from behind the the you know the armadillo person oh yeah it's, and, it's kind of wacky when he's like we're all answering our own letters now yeah, exactly. Let's just be honest. This is me, and if you write stuff to me, I'm gonna I'm gonna admit that it's me. And and here's what I was thinking. And you know, there's ways in which that is. On the one hand, it's a little easier to 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 attribute what's happening. You know, kind of take some of that at face value. But there is a little bit of his like, yes, I was very proud of this moment. I'm like, you should not be. There's that amazing. <laughs> like, that is a mistake. Yeah, there's there's that amazing sequence where it's a two issue again. Seems like a fill in issue. That two issue story with the steelworker in Pittsburgh who falls into the vat with the bit of Uru hammer and comes yes. back as. And it is, it's one of those things where they, for those who don't necessarily know, it's a two issue story. The first issue, the character who is pushed into the vat, who, because he was, um, basically, uh, 
threatening to expose the the evil boss plant bosses whatever the hell um he's he is white in the first issue and then in the flashbacks of the second issue he is black and once you realize that they completely miscolored the person in the first issue you realize that david michelini had written horribly quasi offensive black person patois you know and later on goes on to complain about the character being miscolored after he you know he's like especially after i worked hard to make sure that that yeah, character it, was speaking it is really funny isn't it oh i was just like you know dude i would have just like complained about like totally covered it up and been like yeah i can't believe they colored him back in the second issue what are you gonna do you know, because seriously, <laughs> no, but he, he probably thought he was being crazily progressive. That's the thing. But yeah, crazily progressive by having the guy be like a superstitious guy who says stuff like I go and gets my, you know, like, oh, it's so like, what were you thinking? And he really did think that it really was the kind of <laughs> wait, you're you're saying it's unrealistic to have a black man. Hit by a an oar and shouts "Hoo hoo!" I my thing is when that was a white person that was doing that, I was kind of like, "Oh, rustic color," you know. I kind of like the the attempt to kind of have like, "Okay, well, here's a guy," you know. It's it's a blue collar guy with you know maybe not a lot of education or whatever. But then when you get to the next issue and you're like, "Whoa, whoa, whoa! Wait a minute!" Like, the only black character in the book talks like that, and every other white person on there is like, uh, it was just not, that was the opposite of good. That was actively bad. Holy shit. You know, now <laughs> that I think about it, okay, so 178 is that weirdo beast villain. The issues 179 and 180 with the Bloodhawk issues by Tom DeFalco, that was like a, that, those were clearly fill-in issues. God, there's a lot of fucking fill-in trash. I know there is, man. Just uh, so then you have, so then you have the the um, Avengers get reduced down issues, and then right. you have the Absorbing Man. Yeah, Absorbing Man, which again feels good in a kind of, but in a a in a completely whole, inconsequential way. Yeah, it's like the between big arcs story. Yeah, yeah except exactly. that, that's what these twenty-two issues are. Exactly, they're all between big arcs. And what's horrible is after they finish a two issue thing it's like okay here's an issue where we get a chance to catch our breath it's like it's, don't here, i'm here, not even here's winded. a breather yeah <laughs> jesus well okay so you get that so you got, you've got what that's five issues no yeah. it's four, four you get four issues of michelini then you get um grunwald and grant yeah doing the the scarlet witch story and that's for three issues that's right then you get god is that grant or michelini back with when they go to russia for absolutely no reason uh, it's Bill Mantlo. It's it's another guest. Oh, is it? Bill Ma Bill, yeah, Bill Mantlo scripts that one. Wait, wait, which issue is this? Because one... 188. 188 is Oh, is okay. Because, no. No, 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 no. Yeah. I think... Yes, it is. I just looked at no, it. No, of course you did. Okay, never mind. You're right. Sorry. <laughs> and then Stephen Grant does 189. Which is uh, a Hawkeye issue, Hawkeye issue that feels like a fill-in. Yes. He then also does uh, 190, 191, I think. Yeah, which... He definitely does 190. Uh, no, 191. Michelini's back. Michelini's 190, back, exactly. 191, which is part two of a two-part story yeah. written by Michelini. Yeah, 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 exactly. So yeah, Michelini's gone for five issues. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Oh, man, let me tell you. And then, yeah, when he comes back, oh, boy, yeah, shucks. Yeah, he, he comes, like, firing on 
half a cylinder. If I, that. I was shift foreman that night, and when the Thunder God left, I found this tiny chip of Yuru what it flicked off. I've been carrying it as a good luck piece ever since. Great coming from a white person. But once it's sort of, I gots to go get Wonder Man's autograph for my little girl. Oh, David Michelini. So, yeah, Steel City Nightmare. That that was, you know, I have to say, it's kind of interesting. Like, we talk about 200 and how horrifying it is. But in some ways, the Taskmaster ends up being a major character and does get introduced right in, right towards the tail end of this, right? Not yeah, a, Taskmaster's what, 195, 196? He, he appears in 196. Does the story start in 195 yes, or not? Yes, it does. Yeah, so it goes from 195 all the way through, yeah, right, 197, no. No, 196. Is 196, you're right. It's a two-parter, then Red Ronin, then... Oh dear God! Then, yeah, Avengers two hundred. Um, yeah. Well, so, one ninety nine or two hundred, or, or I guess it's just a subplot. Uh, it, well, the subplot starts at one ninety eight. Yeah, that's right. Uh, but the story itself is is basically all in two hundred. Yes, and um, the I, subplot for people who don't remember is that Ms. Marvel, Carol Danvers, a character who pops up on the team and has twenty issues of absolutely no characterization whatsoever. At all, apart from like, oh, hey, I punched something. Maybe I should go here and punch something. I'm not having any luck punching this. Suddenly, it's her characterization is I'm six weeks pregnant or six months pregnant, and I have no idea that's impossible. Yes. Uh, uh, but also that she is so overwhelmed by this that she reveals her identity to the team. Uh, yes. That because is because she says, it's not Ms. Marvel who's pregnant. It's Carol Danvers. Right. Right, which just is... Huh? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Also, I don't know if you read the letters page for issue 200. I had to jump page. ahead. I had to jump Uh-oh. ahead to read it. And I thought it really was... Rumble. No, 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 no. I mean the letters page that appears in issue 200. Oh, no. I, I thought I did, but I was... The letters page that appears in issue 200. Yes. Which you'll understand why this is ironic at the time, people. Um... Is features a letter from someone going, You've not given Miss Marvel any personality, you have to take care of this. Yes. <laughs> and David Michelin is like, I think you'll fight this issue, did it? Ooh. Holy shit. Yeah. Uh, okay, so the plot of Avengers 200 is this Miss Marvel is pregnant. Yep. She has a baby. Yep. She, in the space of, I mean, how many pages is this story? 40? Uh, yeah, I think. 30, that 30 seems, odd? Yeah, well. Yeah, it is. Well, actually, the the whole soup to nuts. Oh, yeah, you're right, because it's double sided. Yeah, it's like maybe forty pages, I think. So, in the space of maybe ten of those forty pages, mm-hmm. uh, she goes from "I've been raped, my body's been used, this is appalling," to "I can't look at that baby," to "I guess I should look at the baby," to because the baby has uh, like her pregnancy, which happens super fast. The baby is growing to adults super fast. To basically. Having a crush on her own child mm-hmm. in the space of like ten pages. Yeah, the the child uh, grows up super fast. Uh, tells everyone that um, it is. Does he tell everyone that he's the son of Immortus before or after everything goes wrong? No, it's but only it's, it's only once. It's once Hawkeye. Because again, this it's is once Hawkeye. Does, the, does yeah? The, this is yeah. the David. This is again a revisit to the glory days of Jim Shooter. What happens is his the machinery, 
that the grown Marcus is working on while all these time periods are assaulting Avengers Mansion and actually the world at once. Hawkeye steps in, says, I knew you were up to something. You're a weirdo creep. Uh, and then shoots the arrow that destroys the machinery that Marcus is working on. And then you get that classic close-up, George Perez close-up on the single tear sliding out of the eyeball. And you find out Marcus then goes on to tell everyone his true origin, uh, which is that basically he is the offspring of Amortis, but more like himself. He is Amortis's, uh, I don't know, how the hell is it going to, it's really, it's just so okay, horrible. So, so the, this, this is what it is, people. Yeah. Marcus is the son of Amortis, who Amortis has decided to imprison in limbo. Marcus decides that he doesn't want to live in limbo, so this is what he does. People, you'll all agree when I explain this, this is only logical. Yeah. He kidnaps Miss Marvel into limbo where he romances her, has sex with her, makes her pregnant with himself. Quite how that works is never explained. Sends her back out of limbo where she has the baby. Baby grows up to be Marcus. And Marcus then decides he's going to build a magic machine which is going to keep him outside of limbo. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, what happens... I forgot the fact that Amortis actually grabs uh, Kate Winslet from Titanic. Uh <laughs> Then, once back in limbo, through a combination of the gratitude and the subtle manipulation of my father's ingenious machines, the woman fell in love with him. My father then created, within limbo, a pocket of change, a bubble where time flowed naturally. It was there that I was created. And, of course, Ms. Marvel's like, but how? I mean, I was the one who bore you, wasn't I? Yes, in a matter of speaking. And this is where Marcus gets to bore all of us. But let me continue. My father elected to raise me in the pocket of change so that I could develop, could grow. He seemed happy, but there was one factor he hadn't taken into consideration, that there might be a limit to the time that mortals could spend in limbo. Though he seemed to accept it quite stoically when my mother was ripped back through space-time to her own world, I wasn't so complacent years later when Immortus disappeared, never more to return, because that's when he gets bumped off in Avengers 143. Marcus wanders the unchanging vistas of limbo for what may have been an eternity, feeling lost, betrayed, and terribly alone. Even escape to my parents' world was denied me, for as a product of limbo, my mere presence on Earth would cause an irreparable disruption to the local time stream. But then I hit upon a plan. Since I'd been born into limbo, why couldn't I be born onto Earth? And by accelerating both the birth and maturity processes, perhaps I could negate the time flux distortion before it became irreversible. So, yeah, there you go, Graham. What you call pseudoscience, I call well-established fact. <laughs> it is definitely well-established. Limbo change denier. Uh, <laughs> so, for people who have who never heard of Avengers 200, um, the plot is literally this. Ms. Marvel is raped by a supervillain so that she can have that supervillain's child, who turns out to be that supervillain. So far, so absolutely horrific, you say? But wait, it gets better. Ms. Marvel then is so touched by her rapist story that when he has to go back to Limbo, spoilers everyone, Ms. Marvel decides that she's in love with him and is going to go back with him. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. In fact, let me see here. Can I do the dramatic reading for this? By which I'm going to I, read I, this. I think you, you definitely should. Uh, Marcus, after shedding yet another tear, is like, no matter, I'll go. Perhaps I was destined to be alone. No, Marcus, you won't be alone, says Carol. Carol, what do you mean? No, I no, mean... No. 
What do you mean? Oh, yeah, sorry. Oh, man, you're going to make me do all the what? Yes, oh, I What do you mean? I mean that while I still don't know what I felt for you in Limbo, some of that feeling still lingers. And that, combined with the fact that by some bizarre logic, you are my child, makes me feel closer to you than I felt to anyone in a long, long time. And I think that just might be the relationship, a relationship worth giving a chance. So I'm returning to Limbo with you. What? Ms. Marvel, are you sure you know what you're doing? Says Iron Man. And Ms. Marvel says, not entirely, Iron Man. Not entirely. But I've been <laughs> denying my feelings for quite a while. Maybe it's time I started following them. Say goodbye to the others for me, will you? And Iron Man says, but I, I mean, well, I guess I could. Now, come on, people. Let, okay, apart from the fact that Ms. Marvel... This is a comic book in which the only people who are rational, and this should really scare you, is Hawkeye and Ms. Marvel, who quite rightly says, I mean, the craziness of Ms. Marvel going off into limbo with someone that she admits that she can feel attracted to because she bore him as a child is... Oh, uh, no, but, but also, who's there to mention earlier, she was, out, like, outright using language of rape. Like, the comic may not never use the word rape because it's a Marvel comic. It's, like, 1982 or something. Right. But she very clearly says that she has been used and that her body is not her own. Right. And yes. so for her, later on in the same issue, to be like, well, I had feelings for you. I'm seeing as you're my kids. I think we should hook up and see what happens. One of the what things, the, the fuck? One of the things that I find really interesting is that, how do I put this? For whatever reason, like as creepy and wrongheaded as it could be, there's a way in which if Marcus telling the story of Amortis said, yeah, he rescued a woman from... Uh, dying on the Titanic, took her to her his realm, and you know basically wooed her and won her. And then when they disappeared, I decided to do the same thing with a superhero that I wooed and won in this time that you don't remember. But I'm this lover from beyond time. Like that is weird, but it sort of falls within traditionally fucked up male comic book thinking weird. You know what I mean? Wait, the, so what uh, you're saying is if you remove the rape, if you, or at least if you remove the she then bore him as, as No, child. no. I, for me, the factor is, is that the, uh, one of the factors I should say is, is that Marcus Ferry specifically says that Amortis uses subtle manipulations to make the woman fall in love with him. That is that underlines the rapiness of it. It's not like, oh, I saved this woman, she fell in love with me. That's sort of this creepy, like, guy with a fedora male fantasy. You know what I mean? The fact that it's before you... But once you throw in the idea that he has machines that makes her fall in love, it gets in back to that shooter, creepy... It's... You know, the earlier creepy shooter version is it doesn't matter what the woman's feelings or thoughts are. It's all about what the guy needs. Creepy shooter version 2.0, as it exists here, is that the man very explicitly rewrites the woman's personality to make her love him, which is a more horrific form of rapey McRape uh, than Marcus goes and does the same thing. And again, it's not like it's 
an improvement to make Marcus seem more heroic that Carol falls in love with him. He talks about how he specifically woos her. And then he says, finally, after relative weeks of such efforts, and admittedly, with a subtle boost from Amortis's machines, you became mine. Again, there is something that is what I find fascinating is, is that there's some like depending, like arguably to give these people the benefit of the doubt, they were like, who's really going to be able to fall in love with a guy with that kind of mustache and that, that hairline. And instead, well, goatee and instead went with this idea of like, well, so there was manipulation involved it ends up underlining the fact that this guy very specifically raped her, that that Carol Danvers' consent was not 100% her consent. It, 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 becomes, it becomes very specifically a rape fantasy, and it becomes – and that's important because the flip side of this fantasy, the idea that the person raped falls in love with the rapist, is an unfortunate trope that happens – Outside of comic books, like, I don't know if you remember, Graham, but the classic case of Luke and Laura from General Hospital, where Luke, which was this grand romance that I remember being celebrated, you know, throughout People magazine when I was growing up. These were two characters on General Hospital. Luke was the guy who raped Laura. And then over time, they fell in love. They get married. They have the perfect picture book marriage, and then one of them dies. Both of them dies. I don't remember. But that is still considered some sort of strange, viable tactic that Avengers 200, like, doubles down with by then having Ms. Marvel specifically fall in, quote-unquote, fall in love with or decide to pursue a relationship with the child, with the product of that rape, which is weirdly the rapist. Like, part of me is like, if this had been written as some sort of weird feminist meta critique, I'd be all over it. But as it is, it's just horrifying. And of course, as many people point out, among the more horrifying things is from the minute that Carol Danvers gets pregnant, under mysterious reasons and is upset. All the rest of the Avengers are like, huh? But it's childbirth, a wonderful thing. Why are you even upset? Like, and that perv that pervades all the way through the issue. This very strange concept of like, no, Carol, falling in love with the, off you know, taking your own child as a lover because they are in fact a recreation of the person who time raped you is the most perfect and natural thing a loving human being can do is like it's it, yeah it's it's astounding it, i mean it's actually it's amazing that this was published uh, amazing yeah 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 i mean it's amazing for for people who don't know what's astonishing is i i keep mentioning shooter because of michelini because uh even though michelini's the guy writing it because it is well, very he, specific the guys scripting it it yes. says very clearly at the start shooter so perez shooter. layton and michelini are yes. the plotters. Sorry, yes. why, do I, why am I shut? I'll shut up. <laughs> At least Dan Green <laughs> had nothing to do with it. Um, yeah, so it's very specifically their plot, and Michelini handles the script. So Now, I cannot remember where I read this, and so I may be misremembering. Mm -hmm. But I have this odd memory that someone involved with this issue, and it might have been Perez, it might have been Michelini, mm -hmm. has said in recent years that this, the reason that this has so many plotters 
mm-hmm. and that it, it's it, it's a narrative that just makes no sense and it ends up being genuinely upsetting. Yeah, is that it was literally created at the last moment. Mm-hmm. Uh, that, that it was meant to be an entirely different story. Right. Right. And that it, that it was an issue that was created remarkably, remarkably quickly. Which I can see and I can believe. There is a way in which... Well, it's, it's incredibly sloppy. That's what yeah. I was going to say when I said before that I hadn't read it in years and when I read it, it was worse than I thought. Mm-hmm. It's it's just as much as it is appalling, mm-hmm. as much as it is abhorrent from a moral point of view, Yeah, it is also really badly done. Yeah. That the, there, there is no the pacing is all over the place. Yeah, there is no real plot outside of the Marcus scenes, which is only like half of the comic. The rest yeah. of it is oh, time's going wacky, and oh, look, there's dinosaurs. Right. Uh, but the end of that is literally Marcus goes away, so everything goes back to normal. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it as much as we've been joking about everything else feeling like filler. This issue really feels like filler. Oh yeah. Yeah, and, and and really hastily done filler. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it, it's very it it on all levels it is a, a complete misfire. And yeah. as much as Marvel's like issue one hundred and fifty was a disaster because it's See, a fill in. Oh my god! Totally if, what if I was thinking. This had been a fill in. Oh my god! This was, had been a fill in. If this had been issue one fifty, I mean that is that idea of like Steve Englehart gets thrown under the bus for being late. If this is what happens when the when the buses run on time, to say nothing of the fact of how many fill-in issues are between issue 175 and here anyway, like the fact that this is what you get when you rush and, and shove something out, whew, it is, it is, oh, it is so bad, Graham. I really have to say, I'd never read it before, and I could actually, I, it is horrifying now what i'm curious about what what i find fascinating is the idea that some of this stuff was later addressed by chris claremont right i and- I, I was actually going to bring that up just oh, now good. thank you um i know i that i've said to many many people at many times they should listen to the rachel and miles podcast mm-hmm. um rachel and miles in the 17th episode of their podcast which is earlier on this month uh, addressed avengers annual 10 yes which is chris claremont and michael golden doing a follow-up to the storyline where Carol returns and explicitly takes on the Avengers for being like, I was raped and you guys were perfectly okay with it. What the fuck? Yeah. I mean, Claremont very, very specifically addresses it. He does not shy away from it at all and calls all the characters out on their deeply moral failing in the story. Right. Um, now, Graham, that, yeah, sorry. let me ask you, because this is my thing, because I did read Avengers issue annual 10 way back when, kind of a great issue, and that is, so it was the follow-up to an event that specifically addressed this, and I was like, holy shit, what is this crazy comic book that I didn't bother to hunt up and read for like an hour 35 years or whatever, but do you think that that, do you think it might have been better to just pretend this never happened than to have it doesn't doesn't addressing that after the fact be more because i don't remember what the avengers say other than um uh, uh that's, that's pretty much all they say you know and, and, that, I, that and I guess you're right right exactly and part of me is kind of like i don't think that even at the time part of me was like 
okay, that just sounds so shitty that I kind of can't believe that it's them. Because there's no, well, we were being subtly mind-influenced or, you know, because of all the time thinking all of our brains got thrown back to the 1950s. Oh, no, you know. Here's the thing. I think you have to address it. I Mm. think if you don't, I, 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 in fact, I don't even think you don't. I think you have to address it. I don't think there's any, short of never mentioning Ms. Marvel ever again. Right. Which you have to bring it up. I agree, but isn't there a way in which Claremont's having, I don't know if it's meant to be, like, I'm just missing the level that that Claremont is is basically um, hurling some egg at the face of Marvel editorial. Well, from what I understand it, after Mm -hmm. Avengers 200 was published, Mm -hmm. there actually was outroar amongst the readership. Mm Mm-hmm. To the point where they were explicit, they were horrified, or a, a portion of them were just horrified by the comic. Great, I would uh, think. And and one of them, I uh, this is why this is why people should re- listen to the Rachel and Miles episode because they actually remember exactly the name of the woman and what her essay is. There is a there was a woman who wrote an essay that was called something along the lines of the rape of Carol Zambers, mm, mm-hmm. which explicitly addressed. The fact that Carol Danvers not only was raped, but recognized it as rape, and then that is essentially hand-waved away by the end of the story. Right. Um, so it was out there. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I think Claremont is, as much as anything, acknowledging that mm-hmm. and accepting that it was a mistake. Mm-hmm. That I, don't, I really don't think you could... I don't think there's any good way to to not do that i think i think you you really have to especially when the the complaint has been made explicitly Mm -hmm. that the the character was raped i don't think that you can just be like we were all mind controlled well i don't think i don't think that makes anything any better and in fact feels like you're dismissing rape and it feels like you're dismissing the 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 gravity of what the original story does set up. Well, okay. Uh, may, maybe this is where I'm a little uh, 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 thrown off, I suppose, a little bit by this. Is To me, the idea is... I feel that by saying like to the Avengers, like, hey, you know, we were mind-controlled, makes it kind of seem like the the meta-context to that is... Them is is basically the acknowledgement that these characters were not themselves, so to speak. You know what I mean? Like they like there's a way in which you know what right and wrong is, and that that was clearly wrong at the time. And the reason why we weren't acknowledging that it was wrong um, was the fact that you know our brains are being shimmy shammed, that they're being controlled. You know, because of course these aren't you know, real characters in a way. If you put it more in the context of Carol Danvers comes back and says, I was raped and all of you were fine with it. And they're kind of like, oh yeah, that's true. Yeah. Well, you know what thing, I mean? Puts I, it I more in it, the context I, of like, oh, but it was a different time back then. It was Avengers 200. You know, we didn't which, know. Any which by better. the way, was a year earlier. Yeah, exactly. We didn't know any better. Yeah. Well, that's sort of, that was, that was, yeah, I hoped I was being funny with that, but you know what I mean? Like, it seems to me like, <laughs> no, well, well First of all, I think in Avengers 10, there is at least a suggestion that there was mind control. 
Uh-huh. I, I think I think they do try and have a have it both ways kind of. Yeah, have I'd be I'd be okay with that. Of course. I I I, I haven't read it in a while, mm-hmm, but mm-hmm. I, I want to say there is at least the suggestion of well maybe you know maybe we would, um, uh, Marcos was doing something to us. Yeah. I could be wrong. Right. Um, it's also worth noting that uh, the end of Avengers issue two hundred is. Iron Man and uh, Hawkeye basically being like, we have no idea if we just did the right thing. Yes. Which is really odd as well. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. actually, the start of 201 is the character still being like, yeah. well, that was kind of fucked up. Yeah, just like, huh, I don't know how I feel about that. Yeah, I agree. So to the point where you're kind of like, I don't think David Michelini was in any way cool with that story. Right. Well, I, I don't I don't know. I mean, part of it is... Like, if you look at it very specifically, the last page of 200, Hawkeye is like, I just feel rotten. If I hadn't destroyed Marcus's machine, you know. Oh, I actually, I feel for the listeners, we should explain. Marcus explains that the machine we keep talking about that, that Hawkeye destroys. Marcus yes. explains that the reason he's come there is not just that he can live in the real world, but also that he's going to essentially usher in a whole new golden age of, for humanity. Yeah, exactly. So there's that. Marcus isn't just – he's supposed – once again, it is the savior complex uh, that somehow – it's so funny to me. I'm like, I have no trouble with Jim Starlin's savior complex. I have a lot of troubles with Jim Shooter's savior complex. I don't – I if very much – if your name is Jim – and your last initial is S. Your savior complex is it could go either way with me, basically. By the way, Jim Salakrup, who edits this, do you think oh, he had a savior complex? I must have. The evidence is there, Graham. Really, <laughs> two out of two. You can't deny this science completely. Exactly, people. Come on here. I looked at a big sample set. Uh, yeah, no, I, I just. Oh, Graham. Oh, Graham. Oh, it, it's 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 just creepy and. And shameful. It is. It really was, uh, like, out of all the various moments in these 200 issues of Avengers where I felt like I needed a shower afterwards, I really needed, I felt unclean after putting down that issue. It is. And and what's hilarious is I did jump ahead to 203 just so that I could read the letters column. And sure enough, it is nothing but praise from nothing but males. So it's, it's, ooh, ah. Oh, um, yeah, Graham. Why haven't? Why aren't we reading the annuals? I say this now because you uh, know. Yeah, I that's a really good question. I was thinking that the other day. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know. We really should. We probably should. At this yeah. point, they're like annual nine or something. I know. Part of me is like, uh, I really kind of don't like. I'm like, I I think those reading those first four annuals in a go would kill me. But part of me is like, maybe we should do it. I mean, half of them I, are I probably we reprints, should. right? What's that? I, I, I think we should. I, th- yeah, I think I we think, definitely I think should. So. Yeah. Okay. Well, we'll we'll figure out a way to to work that in. Hang on. I'm looking right now. So uh, let's see. It looks like number one. I'm not sure any of the reprints. Oh, really? Are they all original stories? Shit. No. Wait. Number. Th- it looks like number three is a reprint. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that may be it. Oh wow. Yeah. Okay. That might be it. Okay. Interesting. Interesting. All right. Well. Well, we should give it a go then. Oh, and it'll probably be great. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> oh, Jeff, how bad can it be? Well, I don't know, man. Some of those Roy Thomas Don Heck issues, I just don't. I don't want to. I want to. I don't want to revisit another iteration of them. You know what I mean? I'm just like I, I want to go. I forward. don't want to go back. Yeah, let's see. Annual three is definitely a reprint. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a reprint of lots of things, it looks like. Annual 2 looks like a brand new story. Really? All right. Let me see. Where are you at? Are you on Comic Vine? Where are you? I am you Comic looking? Vine. I'm on Comic oh, okay. Vine. Yeah. Like, like... Uh, and Annual 1 looks like a brand new story as well. The monstrous I, master plan. It, of the it even says all new in the cover, which is a bit of okay. a Okay. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, this is all just kind of... Yeah, I mean, it looks like volume Annual 3 is the only... Nope. Annual 3 and Annual uh, 4 are reprints. Well, I should say, because I, 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 I was like, oh, Gen... Oh, and 4. Yeah, I was like, I, Jim Starlin's Avengers Annual 7, probably one of my all-time favorite comics. And looking at it, I've certainly read issue... It was issue 6, I remember, which has got like a Kirby cover, and it's like Jerry Conway just like finishing up the Nuclo Roxxon saga that I just remember at the time as being lame. And now, particularly, I just don't want to read it. But really, eh, that eh, the Spectrums of Deceit, eh, there's a one where it looks like the Avengers are being beaten up by a giant bee. What is that? Issue 9. Is that a big bee? What is that? Arsenal. <laughs> what? It looks like a big I, bee from I, here, I, from I, that I, distance. I, Issue nine. Oh, I see what you're talking about. Yeah, this kind of look like a giant bee man. <laughs> it kind of does. I was like, oh great, another another. Oh one wait, of those but like... this is the annual that is referenced in the the story we were just in the run we were just reading. Oh really? Yeah. Oh, is this where? Oh, this is where uh, Captain Marvel like disappears or whatever, and then pops back yeah, up at the I end. Think so yeah. See, fighting uh, bees, it's always a problem. Exactly. With all the, oh my god, he looks like a, he, yeah, now that I've seen the full cover. Let me tell you, there's some crap villain design, too, throughout well, this the, stuff. Well, this is, there's some bad, bad villains in general in, oh, in yeah. this run. just I awful. Mean, but yes. that, that issue, Grey Gargoyle, where before it's the Grey Gargoyle, it's basically his spacesuit turned to stone that's running around punching everyone. I was like, God damn, John Byrne, you've done some dull designs before, but that is, that is dull. Like it really was. It was like, ugh, like, oh, what if we, does, what if it looked like a, an extraterrestrial meets a dolphin, but I put like a half-assed jetpack on its back. Isn't that going to spell out terror? Like there's just blah. Ugh. Anyway, Join us next time when we'll be discussing Avengers 201 through 212, or really more like two episodes two from now yeah, when we discuss. Really <laughs> uh, but no, we're getting towards the good stuff. Or we, we're getting towards um, Roger Stern coming on. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, mind you, to get there, though, we do have to deal with the infamous Hank Pym. Ghost, See, that's it. Uh, we have to recross yeah. Jim Shooter River, take two. Oh. Yeah, we do. Which is... Yeah, as problematic as what we've just read, but somehow more so. Yeah, I don't know. You know, I I think. Oh, wait, wait to get to the Hank Pym issues. Well, okay, all right. I remember reading part of them, some of them. Yeah, it's going to be bad. It's going to be bad because Tigra joins the team coming up, and then it just all gets. Yeah, but doesn't Tigra join when Stern takes over? Or am I completely misremembering? No, I thought she was in there earlier. In fact, it, isn't she there is, some I, weird? Cause, up. Yeah, I just don't like the... Is so our... Stern's, Stern's totally coming on by like issue 230 or something. Right. And then everything gets so much better. Right. But before that, because like the Hank Pym issues are around 220, 221. Shooter, I thought Tiger was on the team already and pretty much sleeping with everybody because that's Shooter's idea of sophisticated characterization for females. Um, right? Am I wrong on that? 
I'm I'm really not sure if that's Shooter or if that's there. Oh, oh great. We'll, we'll find out. Woo-hoo-hoo. All right. Uh, that flies ahead. Listeners. Yeah, everyone, come join us. Come join us. <laughs> uh, this is when I say again, anyone who's on Marvel Unlimited, uh, all the stuff is there. So you really can come join us. Yeah. No, no letters pages. So you don't get some of this context. And I feel like there's a couple of ads that I might have wanted to talk about at some point, but by, by the time I read, finished issue 200, I'm like, just forget it. I'm just like, let's just, like, yeah, let, let's just, let's just get this over let's with. Let's just slog. I'm two thirds of the way there, everybody. Comics. Yay. <laughs> Hey, so let's talk about comics, Jeff. Multiversity. Yeah. Let's talk about multiversity, number one. The multiversity, because there is a definitive article. Oh, thank you. You're right. And I would leave that off. The multiversity, uh, issue one. Um, yeah, where, I don't even quite know where to start. I guess one thing that I should say is, is that, uh, David Uzumeri has some, uh, annotations up at Comics Alliance, and there yes. is a fantastic post. Uh, oh, by at, Cheryl Lynn. Yeah, by Cheryl Lynn at Digital Femme. Is it just dot blogspot dot com? Is that, uh, is that it? I I want to say maybe digitalfemme.org, but I don't know. Let's look into it, shall we? Digital Femme. Uh, digitalfemme dot com. Digitalfemme dot com. Excellent. And that's uh, Femme is F E M M E, right? Uh, so. And yeah, we will put links to this up in. in oh, the, of course in we the will. Podcasts dot com people. Uh, first of all, because I want to make Jeff sigh, and secondly. You have to read Mary's annotations, and you have to, have to read Sherilyn's post. Yeah, Sherilyn's post. One of the things that fr- frustrates me that we'll get around to is some of the stuff. The so well, let's let's so let's talk about the issue, and then we can work in the, for some of the various points that that they bring up that that we can talk about. Um, multiversity number one, the multiversity number one for people who don't know, and I kind of don't know how you can listen to this podcast and not necessarily know. It's Grant Morrison's big project for DC. This is the first issue of what's going to, of eight, I guess. I think it's eight, yeah. Uh, but with the idea that I believe they're being bookended, right, by um, the multiversity one. At, I, I, and, and probably the multiversity finale. One, yeah, because like, they're not going to miss. They're not going to miss up a giant sub another number one. Yeah, exactly. And uh, it, well, and in fact, if you want to look at it in in certain ways, Morrison has structured the miniseries so that each issue of the comic is in kind of in its own way a quote unquote number one. In that they're supposed to be different comic books from different parallel universes telling this continuing the story um that starts here in the multiversity number one right uh anything else i, I we was, should build I on was that trying from? to explain this to kate last night mm-hmm. did, did, did you have any luck at all no yeah i like that just said i was trying to explain everything like i i tried to explain it in, in the um the meta mm-hmm. right which is uh, i mentioned the and then she's like she was like no 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 but what what actually happens, and then I tried to explain the plot. Right. And I think at some point she's just like, "This is not worth it." <laughs> yeah, one of the things that is one of the things that I feel that DC did very well is by releasing that multiversity poster in advance and letting people get a chance to get in some annotations just on that the map that is released of the multiverse as it's conceived of and as it exists in this Morrison miniseries um, kind of allows a, there's a much stronger, it's interesting for me reading the multiversity. Number one, 
I was like, I can't tell if, because Grant Morrison, who's been working on this project for a while, this project has been gestating for a long period of time, supposedly while the different artists completed the, the different issues. Um, Morrison said he had been working on this project for a long time and, and really labored to make it a co coherent and cohesive storyline um, where all the pieces fit and there's not there's not really a lot of opportunities for you to get confused. Now, Morrison has said that about other things, like, for example, his, his run on Action Comics, where he was like, I don't know how I can be more clear about this. And part of, for me, what was problematic is on an issue-by-issue issue basis, it was baffling and it, uh, perhaps even absolutely contradictory. And then by the time the last piece fell into place... Once the capstone was in place and you saw the whole structure, it made sense. So one of the things I appreciate about what they're doing with the multiversity is they're giving us enough pieces of the puzzle beforehand, sort of a picture of the jigsaw box, if you will, that these individual pieces feel like they're coherently assembled and are going to snap neatly into place when all the pieces are assembled. And yet... Yes. I was going to say, here's when I completely disagree with you. Interesting. Because what I have run into a lot on the internet in the last couple of days is people going, oh, I'm curious about multiversity, but I don't have an encyclopedic knowledge of all DC continuity, so I'm not going to pick it up. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I think that a lot of the advanced publicity makes people think that they need to know that. And I think the first issue does not require you to know that. I think the first issue literally just requires you to, A, be able to read, and B, <laughs> Understand the concept of parallel worlds. Uh, yes. I, I find I find the first issue incredibly straightforward. Well, see, I, I guess that's what I was going to say. Is is the flip side that I, I because I went so down one tangent is I don't know if it's because of that or Morrison really did spend a lot of time crafting this issue in particular felt very specifically crafted to inform you and and if in areas where you have to guess you can sort of make i think educated guesses as to what he's doing where he's going um i i think outside of the meta and outside of the clearly meant to be set up for future revelations namely mm -hmm. the gentry and what they want you're right i don't think you need to guess anything well okay i i really genuinely don't because i you know, he even goes so far as to explain the connection between the parallel worlds and the fact that each parallel world views the previous parallel world as a fictional narrative inside a comic book. Yes. Yeah, along certain lines. I He does make that clear. But, for example, Graham, I mean, there are – there's the, there's multiple narrative captions, some of which have – um like the 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 meta captions of you know don't oh, read, you it, think this is just a comic book but it's bait you know alternate in some cases with um, point of view caption panels from the characters in the book and you kind of have to pay a little bit of attention I think in order to make sure that you're following you know which is which e or in places where Morrison is definitely deliberately trying to be. Um, ambiguous about who's speaking, which I think is important too. You know, uh, this is what I'm like. Are you sure? I think the only caption boxes in the 
the book are those caption boxes? Well, there's the caption boxes that are the captions from the internet. You know, the internet. Yeah, which are, which are clearly in a different typeface. Yes. I, I clearly type a box. Yeah, no, they're all in different boxes. I, I get that they're different boxes. Then there's the, <laughs> there's the, the meta, like I'm going to intro, I'm going to tell you that Nick's Uaton, Uaton is the, is the last of the monitors. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, I, and I, I think I, maybe I, that's I get what it. You're saying. I, I guess I, like, I clearly read those as different voices because the format of the boxes is also sure. different. I, I absolutely get that too. But what I think, so, well, for example, there is, yeah, all right. Well, that, that is fine. I agree that there are, that they are different, but they are not, um, it, it for, for the purposes of the unfolding, what they're meant to be and who they're meant to represent is ambiguous. In fact, one of the things that I think is very interesting is that when you see the appearance of, the villains of the piece, the gentry, they speak in uh, different captions than the captions that are being presented as the, you know, don't read this book, do read this book, you have to do what we're telling you, don't do what we're telling you, while still maintaining the same sort of uh, first-person plural voice. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And I think that, I think, again, I feel that that is an area where Morrison's like, okay, you're supposed to be reading them very differently, but there's also supposed to be enough of a similarity in the voices that that's, that it's important. You know what I mean? Again, I just had such a different experience because I, I totally see what you're saying, Mm -hmm. but I don't even see that much similarity in the voices as one is, uh, an omniscient and unreliable narrator. Uh-huh. And the gentry are quite clearly characters talking to another character to me. Like I I don't read I don't read them both as expositionary caption at all. No, they're not no, they're not expositionary captions. You're right. They are they are they're dialogue caption they're dialogue appearing in captions, right? Sure. Yeah. So but in that sense, because they're both the two, never mind. In any event, Graham. <laughs> no, I'm super curious. What do you mean? Like, are you, are you, are, are you concerned that people will read and not make a differentiation? Or are you curious about the, the, a similarity that, that you think they're meant to be read as, as connected? I'm, I'm, I think they are meant to be. I, I, I guess what I'm saying is the, 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 when someone says at the beginning, at the end of the page, stop reading. And then on the next page, the next caption is continue to read. And then the next caption is do as we tell you. And then the next caption is the choice is yours. Do as we tell you is, I think, very freighted to the way that the gentry speak when they when they say you know thunderdents in the SOS we did we of the gentry and so the first person plural that that pops up that creeps into the not just the first person plural but the first person imperative i suppose of do as we tell you um and you know, actually, there is a point where I guess the the fiery "We need your help" that appears in the skies back behind the Empire Strikes Back when the 
<laughs> when the yellow submarine pops up. You know, I I feel <laughs> I feel that one of the things that I appreciated about multiversity is the gentry who are presented as the big bad of the book. Initially to me on the first read, I worried that it was Morrison that the villains were essentially Morrison's conception of despair as specifically provided um, as it finds voice in internet naysayers, essentially. The idea that when we have the gentry pop up and the gentry is basically just a big eye, um, is the I, my worry initially was like okay so Morrison's dressing up the 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 idea of the voices of negativity specifically the voices of negativity that you find on the internet as being the gentry that they're literally like the entitled entitled readers um, only when you get to to me the second reread I was kind of like well or what if the gentry is actually a reference to the editors the the people who so to speak like own the land on which all the heroes toil um and represent the degradation of essentially the publishers that that Morrison is instead of attacking a certain type of reader for which he he feels um not a lot of kinship with and therefore a tribe uh, attributes a lot of um strong criticism and harsh words for that he is instead playing something a little bit closer to uh what goes on in action comics where the villains might actually represent the um the publishers you know the people who can who have these characters and insist that they have control and insistence on how they're supposed to exist and that that existence is a joyless immortal one I suppose. Yeah, which is that's actually where I went first. Mm-hmm. I like when you were mentioning the internet. I was like, "Oh, that's interesting. I didn't consider that at all." Because uh-huh. I, and I'm not even sure I necessarily went to the publishers as meant as much as the those who control the dominant concept of the superhero. Yes. So for me, it's not just the publishers; it's also the movie studios. Mm-hmm. It's it's those who control the IP. Yes, those and who those control who seek, the IP. Those who seek to flatten the IP into a very specific concept, a very, a very specific iteration of an idea. Yeah. And that's why later on in the book, when you have the... Are they called the Avengers? They're not called the Avengers. What are they? They're the Avengers analogs. Yes. The, well, and interestingly enough, because this is something that I, I didn't think was necessarily addressed, I think, in either Uzumari or, or Cheryl Lynn's uh, specific points, but um, ba ba ba. Where are they? They pop up at the. They say their name at the beginning of a page. Retaliators. The retaliators. Retaliators. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. But 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 when they they attack um, Captain Carrot, mm-hmm. and Captain Carrot's response is basically, "You can't destroy me, cartoon physics." Yeah. Who wants to argue think, with cartoon physics? Yeah. yeah. I think that's really important mm-hmm. because you have a villain who's essentially. Um, uh, you know, we we wish to make you like us. Mm-hmm. We we wish to uh, create a, a homogenous idea of a superhero, a yes. homogenous idea of the potential of superheroes. Yes, and then you put him against the character, and Captain Carrot is even in the quote realistic unquote 
version of which he appears in the page here. Mm-hmm. He is a character who utterly rejects that. Yes. He's a superpowered talking rabbit for fuck's sake. Yeah. Um, so you really do have the, you have the moment where, if you like, there's the, uh, imposition of the gentry's, uh, plan of, of the, the gentry's intent mm-hmm. on this character. And this character just outright rejects it. Yes. It felt very, very, um, important and very much, uh, Morrison stating or at least hinting at his intent mm-hmm. for the book in mm-hmm. that, that one scene alone. Right. I, and also I, he's, he's very much, he's repeating not only what he did in action, mm-hmm. but also to an extent what he did in Final Crisis. Yes. Yeah. Which is the idea that the idea of superheroes mm-hmm. is more important than any particular uh, expression of that idea. Uh, yes. Well, uh, right. Yes, exactly. The idea of the superhero trumps the expression. But also, um, I feel like there's just something that's specifically about that. that, that that's kind of the idea that the... The superhero remains an idea and that it's important for ideas to remain fluid, that the more that you try and fix them into a particular um, format or identity that the and the the creation of trying to make that identity, quote unquote, real, the farther you're getting away from. One of the things that I thought was interesting slash funny about Earth 8, uh, the place where they end up fighting the retaliator and you end up seeing... Um, whatever the hell his name is, Doc Dribble or whatever, um, is that the, it is very it is very much the ultimate universe that is very specifically the ultimate Marvel characters that are being displayed in that. I don't know if that if that's so obvious that it doesn't really need pointing out. But well, that uh, unpack that a bit because I got that feeling, mm-hmm. but I also I'm not sure I would necessarily say that it's it's obvious so why why do you feel it's, it's so obvious that, that when when they meet the retaliators they are it, it's they are definitely the ultimate versions well Is it the, the captain america analog uh it's who, it's who, who does talk like yes miller's captain america yeah he he talks about miller's captain america it's the fact that um all of the all everything that the retaliators do and their poses are very specifically Brian Hitch. You know the way that um, the behemoth changes that pose. You know when when Captain uh, whatever his name is, the Lord Crusader or whatever, points and says, "You appear out of nowhere. You took down one of our strongest." Um, the way that he's pointing and the angle that it's at is very much a Brian Hitch angle. And of course the fact that, um, blah, blah, the Thunderer says Superman, they look like my friends, but it's not them. Like this is not the Thunderer's earth. This is, this is the, this is the ultimate universe for the Thunderer. He's not, these are not the characters that he knows, you know, Mm -hmm. Um, now that could be that I'm misunderstanding and that in fact that this is, this is a corrupt universe, a corrupt earth, but I, I feel like what Morrison's saying is the end result of this ultimate Marvel universe is the creation of this, um, uh, terrible egg that, that gives birth to, um, 
you know, the the judge of worlds, the the evil corrupt Nix Yuatan. Yuatan. You you Yuotan? Is there is it is it officially? Do we have an official call on how to pronounce that? Uh, no, and also I would not even try. To yeah, I, I guess I probably should have called the corrupt super judge, basically. So, so it seems to me which, that which again is another Final Crisis caller, like a, directly yeah. a Final Crisis. Oh, caller. absolutely! In fact, it it is one of the things that I I one of the things that is to me really, and this is why I sort of wring my hands a little bit about uh maybe how clear. This is, is like, on the one hand, I suppose, yeah, if you have not read all of Seven Soldiers and Final Crisis and Final Crisis Superman Beyond, by the time you get to the end of the Multiversity Issue 1, you're like, oh, it really seems like they're in the crap, the shitter. But by the, for me, by the time, having read those books, by the time you get to the end of Issue 1, I mean, there's so many cues beforehand that Final Crisis is important. Seven Soldiers is important. That this is, this is, that this, Morrison is flagging the point that this is, could well end up being the capstone of what he's been saying on his projects for DC, as well as being an extension of, you know, the story that he's trying to tell. You know what I mean? And I, what's always interested me, and it was made very clear in uh, All-Star Superman. Mm-hmm. Is and actually in action as well, is that Morrison is telling one story across all these different realities, right? Like he'll do callbacks to things which theoretically do not fit, right? All Star Superman has explicit callbacks to his Justice League. Mm-hmm. Uh, action has explicit callbacks to his All Star Superman. Yes. Oh, what's uh, the, what is the callback in that, by the way? Uh, God, now you say it's a. Uh, um, Future Superman, isn't it? Is it? This is really good. Don't me. I'm going to have to reread action, but there is at least one moment where he makes an explicit. No, there, there is right. There's the bandaged Superman. The the super. I think it is, isn't it? The bandaged Superman. The unknown Superman of the 23rd century or whatever that pops up in both the JLA. I I feel that. Well, in uh, in uh, JLA and all sorts of man, it's. uh, I always want to say Star over that's not Solaris. Right. Yeah. 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 It's the sentient plot. Uh, oh, star. right. Yeah, yeah, exactly. That pops up in JLA 1 million and also in All-Star Superman. But, um, I can't, I, now you've got me, but there really is a, uh, between all action and All-Star. I'll, I'll take your word for it. I mean, it's, it's totally, I was like, I said yes, and I'm like, oh wait, I don't know that. And I'd be kind of curious as to what it is. So, and of course, it's wonderful the way in which Action 9, you know, uh, with Morrison's, uh, Obama Superman becoming you know, that character is introduced there and then very explicitly. Oh, no, that character is introduced in Final Crisis. Does he, and he appears in Final Crisis too, right? But he's, he's also, he's Final it's Final Crisis, Crisis, Action Comics number nine, and then here, right? Yeah. And I, I, I really, I really like him. Mm-hmm. I, like, do too. I I find myself wanting DC to do something else with him and also not wanting to because, let's face it, they'll do something terrible. Oh, yeah. <laughs> but, exactly. But I, I wish DC would do something more with him. Um, right. Because there's something very compelling to me, not only with the visual of a mm-hmm. black Superman, mm-hmm. but with the idea that he's a hyper-competent Superman. Right. He's very much a Silver Age Superman. Yeah, he's and very we much haven't, We haven't had one of those in the quote-unquote main continuity right. for the longest time. Right. 
And I really like super competent Superman. Oh, in fact, one of the things that I think is kind of fun is the way in which, with the exception of All-Star Superman, this is maybe the third time where when Morrison needs super competent Superman, he brings in this Superman, you know? Yeah. That there are ways, it, it is really absolutely enjoyable the way in which he's always referred to as the real Superman in, to the point where you're kind of like, hmm, it'd be great if Morrison really thought this was the real Superman. You know what I mean? Just that idea of, but, but of course Morrison is, is talking about something that's super, super important, which is the necessity of the need for these characters to, I, again, I guess, remain fluid in ways that keep what's exciting about their possibilities. You know, yeah, that, that, that that's the thing. Change this, that, I suppose. This feels very much like, even though these are, you know, alternate versions of the characters, all of these characters feel right. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Like, you're, you're like, that's Superman. Of course that's Superman because he's a silvery Superman. He looks different, but he's the, he's the same character. Yeah. Uh, and when you get the Flash, or mm-hmm. it's not even called the Flash, whatever he's called, Red Racer, Red Racer, yeah, it's it's the Flash. Mm-hmm. You, you just you read him as the as the Flash, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. even though it's a different character. And so I I really like that that mm-hmm. you're getting Morrison, and he's done this in his quote unquote regular DC work as well. Mm-hmm. But you get Morrison embracing. That the characters are fluid and that the characters do change and that they have to change. Right. That the change is a necessary part of it. Yeah, uh, for all yeah, that Morrison gets stick for being like, you know, retro in his ideas, he's really not because he's mm-hmm. perfectly happy. And it's his JLA really showed this off. He's perfectly happy to play with whatever the current iteration of that character is. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. When you get to, for example, Zariel, create a new iteration if the current incarnation doesn't work for him. He doesn't right. have a Hawkman, so he'll create a Hawkman. Yeah, he'll create a Hawkman, uh, and of course his, his, the, you know, the tension underlying bat, so much of his Batman run is that the Batman will never die, you know, kind of long live Batman and Robin in that sense, you know, that it doesn't necessarily matter who they are, you can still catch, you can still play with what makes Batman Batman and what makes Robin Robin, despite literally who's wearing the mask, you know, as long as there's certain, uh, Certain interplays uh, in place. Exactly. The idea is what's important. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting, Graham. We we can go back to multiversity number one, but one thing that I want to say is is that by sheer coincidence, I picked up something that came out previously uh, earlier than the multiversity number one and is an absolutely fascinating comparison contrast uh, in the sense of like this... I think arguably the exact same ideas just being expressed in an utterly different way and coming to utterly different conclusions. Um, having said all that, can you guess what I'm going, what I'm talking about? Uh, I, I really can't, but I'm very amused because I also had a parallel to this comic. So I want to know what yours is. Okay. But mine came out this week. So interesting. Okay. My, I feel like there was another one that, well, anyway, my parallel is the story Grandeur and Monstrosity by Alan Moore that appears in God of, God is Dead, the book of Acts. Um, as you know, Rich Johnson took a, made it a point to talk this up at, at least twice in Bleeding Cool. 
And you were telling me the Bleeding Cool was talking up an Avatar book? I know. Jeff, to, Jeff that never happens. I know. It's almost like Avatar owns Bleeding Cool. You would think, right? But this is actually, I, I think for the most part, I, I really appreciated it because this is for people, for people like me who really like Alan Moore, and I feel this is worth distinguishing from, you know, people like people you. People like Graham. me. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I really enjoyed the story and the conceit of the story. It's done. It's super quick. I think it's very, very funny. Um, you probably, I'm sure you know the premise, but for our listeners who, God bless them, <laughs> they're probably healthier people for it who don't follow Bleeding Cool on a regular basis. Uh, the premise is the, this book published by Avatar, God is Dead, has apparently exactly that premise. God dies and then all the other deities that have um, been worshipped try to rush back into existence in order to claim the top spot now that it is vacated. Uh, in Alan Moore's story, uh, For God is Dead, the, this is the, it's like the, I think there's like three stories in here. His is the center um, where people basically come to Alan Moore because the gods had come back, but they basically decide that all of, all of the gods, basically eventually all the planet's deities were said to have returned, save only one. This solitary non-arrival was the most obscure such in the annals of human credulity, having only enjoyed the attentions of a single worshiper in 1800 years. That sole adherent thus by default became the absent God's high priest. So when all the other entities proved less than ideal, it was him people turned to. But of course, a God with only one believer isn't really a religion. More properly, it's a psychosis, isn't it? So... Alan Moore shows up because people beg him to come forward and make the case for Glycon, you know. And interestingly enough, the festival gets packed with all these other deities. So the people heckling in the front row are apparently God, who I thought was dead, Jesus and Satan. Um, and Glycon, in the form of his representative, Alan Moore, shows up boa constrictor and snake puppet in tow and begins to speak about why why gods are important and why glycon is the most important god of all because to more who has taken i think i don't even know if it's an additional step into the thoughts that he had laid out about deity in snakes and ladders and of course, you know, sort of the urtext for him from hell, uh, he makes it very explicit. The idea is that the idea, the idea is God, literally God, gods are ideas and the way to which they run us ragged. What they do to us is both absolutely worth celebrating, but also completely worth, um, keeping your eye on. And so, for more, the idea of having a God worshiping a God that does not exist, that the God is a signifier for ideas, that his God is therefore 
by being a metaphor, by being the shape and a shell, is the is the one that can sort of only be worshipped safely. Because once you start worshiping any other gods, some really really bad mistakes are made. You know, mm-hmm. so. To me, it's an interesting contrast to essentially Morrison appears to be saying or will be saying the same thing in the course of the multiversity. The idea is the idea is God. The idea is the most important thing. When you start adhering to the concept of the God as a literal construct, as a thing that must exist in our reality, then it becomes inherently uh, perverse and yeah, it becomes flawed. Exactly. So, yeah. you know, so kind of fascinating to see, it would have been great if they'd come out the same week. Cause I was like, as it was reading multiversity at the top of my pile of comics and then getting down to God is dead, like near the bottom, I was like, well, God damn, that was kind of, that was kind of great having those two just sort of bounce off each other like that. So I have a question. Yes. In your pile of comics, did you also have the fade out by uh, Brubaker and Phillips? I did have the fade out. Yes, indeed. Now the the fade out to me feels like the ultimate Ed Brubaker Sean Phillips comic in the same way that Multiversity feels like the ultimate Grant Morrison comic. I there think is that's a great way to put it. Mm-hmm. New. Mm-hmm. There, there's nothing new. Mm-hmm. Um, but they they are re approaching the same themes and the same styles that they've worked on in the past mm-hmm. with such um, vigor. And, yeah. and such excitement that and, you're kind of like, okay, sure. Right. Right. And, and thoroughness in a way. Like I said, I sort of feel like there's the, the thing about multiversity that impressed me was the idea that although Morrison has, ha, you know, may not necessarily go any farther with the idea than the way it's been expressed in action comics or final crisis, he's getting to a point where he is going to express it. it. It's sort of the perfect distillation, you know, the fade out reading it feels like the perfect distillation of, of Ed Brubaker and Sean Phillips collaboration in a way. It'll be kind of interesting to see, you know, if they continue to evolve and what they do next, if it ends up getting stale, etc. It, but it, it, it's very interesting because it really does feel like parts of fatal meets parts of criminal. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like it, it I, and incognito and the whole thing yeah. uh, folded into one. Yes. Which I thought was, was just uh, really surprising. Mm-hmm. I, I, I did not expect, I think I expected more of a difference in a strange way, mm. but not getting it, mm-hmm. I did not feel shortchanged. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I didn't either. I, I actually enjoyed this a lot. What I found fascinating is... I'll have to throw this into the show notes, but I thought that uh, Abe did a follow-up to Fatal talking about the book after it ended, talking about the conclusion and the finale and things that frustrated him. And I thought it was actually a really, it was a fantastic breakdown because there was a way in which I had sort of emotionally checked out of Fatal that even though I finished it and read it, it didn't necessarily feel like... I don't know, a major work. And I thought that Abbe did a great job arguing like why we should, why it was worth giving some thought to. And also why, when you follow it to its end, there are things that are frustrating at the end of it. It, it will be interesting to see. One of the things that I think is interesting about the fade out to me is what a strong, uh, Billy Wilder influence there is on it. You know, 
Um, it's very much the sort of book that, that while not being like, oh, note for note, like this is just, you know, kind of frustratingly derivative of Sunset Boulevard. One of the things that's really enjoyable to me about the fade out is, is that Brubaker is taking, um, you know, for some, Billy Wilder is really the father of what we think of as American noir. I mean, noir is such a great, lovely, amorphous thing that you can point to Fritz Lang. You can point to German expressionists, um, that you can point to a lot of people point to Orson Welles and say, like, um, I don't know about a lot, but I've definitely read an article where a critic was like, Citizen Kane is the first noir movie and then uh, Touch of Evil, both directed by Wilder, are, you know, I'm sorry, directed by Wells, uh, is the last noir movie. I think that there's a great case to be made for, you know, perhaps because they're two of my favorites, Billy Wilder's Double Indemnity being like the, the first great American noir movie. Um, and then, you know, Sunset Boulevard being, I don't know, I think, I don't know what your Sunset Boulevard pops up. It's probably not much later than that period. But, but thinking of Sunset Boulevard as a noir film is, I think, incredibly informative. And so there is a way in which, to me, the fade out is really exciting. Brubaker feels like he and Phillips are getting back to a, um, a conception of noir, like Fatal, one of the things that Abbe ta tackles in his essay on Fatal is how it's a book that's about female empowerment and escape from the male gaze that doesn't really seem to invest the female character with a lot of agency or power. You know what I mean? Yeah, I think I think that's a very, very good point. Mm -hmm. Fatal is a very... Is a very male gaze book. <laughs> yeah, is a male gazy book about the male gaze. And even though it tries to put itself very much in, tries to imagine its way outside the box, it really fails to do so in some thought provoking ways, I suppose. Uh, I feel like one of the things that is a comfort about the fade out in some ways is there are people who argue that noir is an inherently the closer that you get it to being about masculinity, the failures of masculinity and the, the, the dangers of, and specifically a form of male self pity that propels the heart of noir. Um, you know, I find that that's all just like, just coded throughout the fade out, the very first issue of the fade out in a way that is incredibly satisfying. You know, it's kind of that thing of like, it's great that, that he was trying at this one thing, but, but the fade out feels like, you know, kind of like after that journey coming back, there's a stronger sense of what to do with the basic materials in a way that's really going to make it efficient and effective, you know, mm -hmm. um, I, I suspect in a way the fade out is going to be far less forgiving of its male characters. And that is, that's usually a sign that you've got some pretty good noir coming your way. I think. I, I agree. I, I really liked it. Uh, oh, good. I, I'm really glad, particularly since you've been pretty coolish about 
Well, fit Fatal, but I don't. It was Fatal, really. Mm-hmm. It was Fatal, really. That that it was just not my bag. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. but no, I, I the first issue of the Fade Out, I I was I found myself very drawn to. Yeah, hmm. uh, I, I I might be misremembering, but didn't I enjoy Velvet more than you? Uh, I seem to remember. I, I yes, was you did to, actually. Uh, you yeah. did. Yeah, yeah, yeah. In fact, I'm like, what's going on with Velvet? Is it still going on? Right? Or was it? Yeah. Right. Because no, I it's still, I it's still did. Going on. Yeah, I realized I, I, that I missed I, I think issue you dropped three. out after, yeah. I unintentionally missed issue three and realized that since I didn't really even notice until issue four came out, that was a sign that I was just not, I was just not, I wasn't in it to win it. Um, well, that that's actually how I dropped out of Fatal as well. Mm. I missed an issue and then I was like, yeah, I didn't even really notice I missed an issue. So, right. okay. Right. So just out of curiosity, do you feel, can you, how do you feel that some of the issues that Abbey brings up that I mentioned, you know, if you haven't read the I have I haven't read the I haven't read yeah. the, the piece. So. Okay, so it's me going sort of second hand off of it. H- how do you feel that Velvet escapes or embraces um the problems it, that I I think that Velvet actually does have uh does allow Velvet's agency in mm-hmm. a way that Almost every other Rubicon book doesn't, uh-huh. uh, and I think part of that is just the genre that Brubaker works in. Mm-hmm. I think Brubaker, as a writer, is a big fan of an inescapable fate, mm-hmm. and that fate's being terrible. Yes. Um, that that robs almost all the characters of agency. Mm-hmm. Uh, I I think that in Brubaker stories, generally you have one character who can make choices, and the choices they make are all bad. Right. Um, whereas in Velvet, I feel that she does, she is in control of her actions despite, she's the one character who can make decisions and mm-hmm. can make choices. Mm-hmm. Um, but the choices she's making are both reactive, but also proactive. And she is making smart choices as opposed to, I think all of Brubaker's male characters make incredibly dumb choices. Right. Um, and so I find her a very refreshing Brubaker leads for that reason alone. Mm-hmm. But I also think that that combats the, the idea of uh, the female characters existing as... And this I'm extrapolating from what you were saying, Appy was saying. Mm-hmm. But the female characters existing as props for the male characters to essentially lust after and feel angst about. Mm-hmm. Well, e- yes. Yeah, I mean, even he's got some very lovely examples in the series of points where Instead of having the female character, um, Josephine, do a thing, a guy pops up with knowledge. And it, you know, it's kind of interesting because at, at the risk of driving everyone insane, do you remember the story that I don't know how widely it got circulated, but there was a panel on which Darwin Cook was talking about the first arc of Catwoman that he did with Ed Brubaker in which um, he said kind of like, he basically said the original conclusion of, of Brubaker's first arc for Catwoman is that Batman, that Catwoman calls in Batman and Batman takes care of the threat, you know, which is, I, I, call I don't think I ever heard that. Oh, it's interesting. He says that in a pa- he said it in a panel that I actually attended and sort of quasi live tweeted. So 
it was a San Diego panel or a WonderCon panel. I'm not exactly sure which. And of course, like five, seven, eight years ago, I'll have to see if I can dig it up because I sort of feel like it got mentioned, but maybe the panel got mentioned, not this fact that was very specific. It was a little interesting because what happened was Cook very specifically says, I wrote back, I wrote to Brubaker and said, you can't have this arc end like this. Um, it doesn't, it's, it takes, it takes away, it takes Catwoman, it doesn't become a Catwoman story. It becomes a Batman story with, you know, Catwoman taking up the first five parts or four parts or whatever. He's like, and then I never heard back from Boo Baker. So I just went ahead and I wrote the ending in which Catwoman beats him. And then I submitted that to the editor and then Brew Baker, you know, put in the script and then, and then it just went going from there. Um, and I really hate, I'm like, I hate saying this stuff out loud because I so doubt my memory. I'm like, I, I hope I'm not starting shit, but supposedly this was, I, I was there. Cook said this out loud on a panel. Supposedly he and Brew Baker are fine about it. I'm guessing. But if so, if that's really the case and, either not a hallucination on the part of me or Darwin Cook, that does indeed perhaps point to a way in which Brubaker's ability to, like, as much as he wants to allow a woman agency and make it her story, there's a way in which it kind of, there's a there's that weird barrier that might exist. Who knows? Nothing like some third-hand gossip from an unreliable source, <laughs> ladies and gentlemen, to motivate it's, it's some like, fine comic book talk. I was like, it's like the bleeding cool of the podcast. Oh, man. That's so hurtful. <laughs> did you read <laughs> Did you read Little Nemo, Return to Slumberland? Did no, no, I, I haven't. I've, I'm not joking, Jeff. I've been working stupidly this week. I oh. didn't even get to the comic store. Cramp. Well, okay, so how'd you pick up the fade out? Was that, that was a, like, I get this via image? That was a digital. That, I, I bought that digitally. I didn't buy the, the I bought that mm-hmm. digitally, digitally. Because here's the thing, even though I knew I was probably going to get multiversity as a comp, mm-hmm. I, on yesterday, I hadn't had it yesterday morning, and I was so excited about both books that I bought them digitally. Hey, that's fabulous. That is great. Um, well, Little Nemo returns Return to Slumberland looks beautiful. I was a little frustrated. But, but what does it read like? Because here's like, I knew it was going to look good, but mm-hmm. part of me is very nervous about what it reads like. Um, hmm. Well, it's a good question. Honestly, it, it one of the things that's interesting is, is that it reads a little bit like decompressed Winsor McKay in that... What McKay's able to do in like one admittedly huge broadsheet page, uh, they, they do over the course of like three pages. So it's very what they have a good, I think a good compromise as far as the pace goes in that at the beginning, you are in the royal palace of slumberland and everyone is trying to find, uh, the playmate, the next playmate for the princess. Uh, the daughter of King Morpheus. And one of the um, sages who shows up says, um, I've got the perfect playmate for you. His name is uh, Jose- James Nemo Summerton. And so what you see are the various emissaries uh, show, show up in James's sleep calling him Nemo. And he's like, my name's not Nemo. And it's like, you have to come to Slumberland. 
and this, so as they start moving him via dreamlike imagery, he's like, I don't want to go. I don't. And then he'll fall or something will happen. And so it, it, it'll end with him waking up. And that last panel is very much the, the little Nemo story, uh, him waking oh. up. So, and then it starts again. So there are four or five sequences in the course of one issue that start and break very much like a little Nemo thing, even though you see what I'm saying? Yeah, no, I totally see. Yeah, so it's, and I think do, that's do, very cool. Do you like it? Though, I'm a little frustrated in that uh, it ends up having uh, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine pages of sketches, script, and a storyline for Little Nemo. I guess ten pages, yeah. And I... I'm kind of, for like a gorgeous four, $4 book. Part of me was like, oh, guys, really? Like, I kind of felt like a little, like, it, it felt like it was being milked. That, by and large, was my largest frustration. There's a way in which I think maybe 10 or 15 years ago, I might have run around shaking my hands about how part of what made Little Nemo so great is the way that blah, 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 specific sexual fears, blah, blah, blah. I'm actually just incredibly happy that it looks so goddamn lovely. Like it, it, as eye candy, I wish that there was that they, that that 10 pages of text features was three pages of text features. And you had another eight pages of story for it. Um, but as a story that is faithful into the spirit of little Nemo, uh, as far as I can tell, but does change, make change things up in order to make it a little more palatable to modern audiences. Um, yeah, it, I, I, I mostly liked it. I, I can't quite move to the realm of love it. I will definitely pick up the next issue, but there's a little bit of the, you know, where I am with pricing. Sometimes with the prices stuff, I get, I get grumbly. So, um, so you didn't pick up Infinity Man and the Forever People number three or Sensation no, Comics featuring Woodward one? Did you? I could mail Infinity Man the Forever. They didn't mail me number two. They <laughs> mailed me number one and number three, which I kind of love. Yeah. Uh, I, I didn't read it. But you know what they did mail me? And I did read it and I was gobsmacked by uh, liking it. Uh, what? Teen Titans issue two. Interesting. I came kind of close to picking that up almost. Huh. I, it was... It's it's going somewhere. Like it, it might even be going somewhere interesting. Hmm. Um, I I was genuinely surprised by how much I liked it. Mm-hmm. Like mm-hmm. surprised to the point where I might pick up issue three myself to see where it goes. Wow! Oh my goodness! Because I'm very, I'm very very curious. Um, both in terms of the. Uh, Will Pfeiffer is playing with very specific parts of DC property mm-hmm. outside the Teen Titans as the bad guys, mm-hmm. um, and it's a re- it's a really odd trilogy of characters he's brought back. Hmm. Um, he's brought back Lady Tron from Alan Moore's Wildcats. Wow, who's the bad guy? Huh. Uh, she she's partnered with Manchester Black of Joe Kelly's parody of The Authority. Wow. And Josiah Power of Carbusic's The Power Company. Whoa, dude, that's like some serious deep cuts. That's crazy. Exactly. Wow. And that's, those, those are the, the antagonists hmm. in this series. 
Hmm. Um, meanwhile, you have girl gang vigilantes who are inspired by a wonder girl who are beating up wannabe rapists by basically roaming the streets of New York with baseball bats and then beating the shit out of creeps, Mm -hmm. for want of a better way of putting it. You have bands that are inspired by Raven. Mm -hmm. And you have Bunker becoming a social media phenomenon because in the previous issue, he gave a very Marvel-esque, hey, you guys, homophobia is bad Mm. speech. Mm Mm-hmm. But that's gone viral, and now this issue is him basically having to deal with it and becoming more militant because he's more popular because of that speech. Mm-hmm. So it's it's like for 20 pages, there's a lot of stuff going on. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it's not... Um, at no point do like, the team get together and fight a bad guy. Hmm. Do you know what I mean? Like He's dealing mm-hmm. with characters individually or in, in pairs. Mm. Um, so yeah, it, it feels like a very, it feels like he has a place to go and mm-hmm. that place is both not your traditional Teen Titans story, but, mm-hmm. and this is, I think what was more importantly for me, not a ripoff of Young Avengers, which is what I was really worried about. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I really, I, I, I was surprised by how much I liked it. Huh. Whereas, forever, uh, Infinity Man, the Forever People, number two, uh, number three, rather. I'm, I didn't even read. <laughs> and, and the honest reason? Mm-hmm. Starlin Art. Yeah. Well. Starlin Art just, just, uh, I, it gave me Thanos, the Infinity Revelation flashbacks, and I could not even pick mm-hmm. up that fucker. Well, I, it's funny because I sort of, it, it was fun for me seeing the Starlin inside the stuff, although I felt like Rob Hunter's inks were trying to make it look... There's ways in which I feel like the look is, on the one hand, very identifiably Starlin, especially, of course, his poses, and I guess in some cases his faces, and yet at the same time, there was part of like, wow, this reminds me of the absolutely insanely um, bland issue too, you know? There's there, there's a few panels there too, where it's, I guess because of the redesigns, where Starlin stuff looks breathtakingly like Rob Liefeld to me. And it was kind of fascinating. I'd never really made that connection. connection. (laughs) Yeah, I didn't. Because to me, whenever I see Rob Liefeld's work, I see a lot of George Perez. Like, I see Perez, like, yeah, exactly. Like, I, I remember flipping through, like, the first issue of Crisis on Infinite Earths, you know, post, you know, post the big first surge of image back in the nineties and being like, Oh, holy shit. There's this stuff. Really, this stuff you can tell really lit a fire under Rob Liefeld. This is, this really excited him, you know, but anyway, so yeah, it was kind of strange. I was like, huh? Starlin. I was not expecting Starlin. Um, it, it was, it's funny. There's ways in which the, DC comics that I did pick up, I found myself going like, oh, this is kind of interesting. It's kind of heading somewhere. And then it leads it where it's heading, of course, is the five years later issue next month. And I'm just like, oh, <laughs> or maybe me. not. Right. Exactly. Like, oh, really? Like, did you did you pick <laughs> just, up Batman just, and Robin? 
I didn't pick up anything, Jeff. I told sorry. You. When I say pick up, Graham, I'm so sorry. I meant to say, did the comic company deliver no, to no, your door? No, they, they did not. They did I'm trying to make it deli- look good for you, man. I'm not trying to make I'm not like you're lying there like they, the emperor they, they, getting peeled grapes not. of comic books. Okay. They, they did not, Jeff. And I'm, I'm sad about that. I'm, I'm way behind on Batman Robin. I'm looking forward to, to picking it up when I finally managed to get to the store. It's interesting. I feel like I skipped an issue, at least two, but maybe it's just that I pissed, pissed. I missed a, missed that <laughs> Red Robin Omega thing or whatever. This issue, I was like, oh, oh did you, you, you didn't pick up Red Ro- Robin Omega? No, I did not. I didn't. Oh, in that case, yeah, I feel like you missed a chunk of story. Yeah, I, no kidding. Cause everyone here is preparing for, you know, it's, it's Bruce Wayne preparing for war with, apocalypse and first he has to like straighten everything out with the bat family and being like are we good okay great here i am putting on my bat super suit and lex luther is going to give me some great advice before i like boom tube my way to 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 fight uh, to be batman of apocalypse which i'm just like i want to read the shit out of this next next issue what a great direction to go with the oh it's the five years later fuck <laughs> Just think of it as taking a month off, Jeff. Ah, uh, Graham. Uh, I have to tell you, I was thinking earlier on this week about the fact that um, DC's he- very heading clearly towards, like, we're bringing back all the New God stuff. The, the next big Green Lantern storyline is yes. bringing back all the New God stuff, which I'm incredibly excited about, I have to admit. Oh, really? Um, did, you, 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 did you see the... I'm like, there aren't ads. The double like, page spread. See, I, yeah. saw, I, I saw, yeah, I saw the double page spread. Oh, yeah. okay. Okay, terrific. And um, you're still excited. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yes, I am. That okay. was well played. Um, but I, I was thinking about it. I was thinking, it's fascinating to me that um, I feel that in doing that and in the way that the New God stuff has been seeded throughout the various DC books for the last couple of years, mm-hmm. um, DC has been doing the Marvel Studios continuity thing. Mm. And that there's, everything's just filled with Easter eggs. But also, if that's true, they've made Wonder Woman one of the core books of the, the line. Because right. Wonder Woman has had Orion all this time and has had the majority of the New God stuff to date. Yes, it is true. That is, And true. that's kind of fascinating to me. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I am too. I'm not sure to what extent. Like... I haven't been following it closely enough, but it sort of felt like Brian Azzarello is like, yeah, they weren't paying any attention to what we were doing. So, you know, kind of because there was that thing of Superman, Wonder Woman. They're like, you know, well, we want to do this story. He's like, well, I've got this story going on. Oh, well, we'll definitely make it look like we're we've read that story. And he's like, oh, that would be great. Thank you. You know, like it was kind of he Azzarello makes it sound like he is doing the opposite of playing ball with the. Well, that's just that. I think, I think what's, what is ironically happening is the rest of the New 52 is having to play ball with him because he got there first. Well, it, it, yes. Yes, it may probably, unless they... Which, you I, know. which I kind of love. Yeah. Yeah, I, 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 I think that is also potentially great. I don't know. I'm very, I'm very antsy about it, Graham. I don't know why. I, you know, OMAC turned out to well, be he, so much better. Yes. Yeah, well, here's the thing. I you I don't think you read the Superman Batman Villains Month issue for Darkseid, right? But if you did, you will have seen what could only be described as a terrible origin for Darkseid. Oh yeah, I think I did read that. Like he's uh, like, and so yeah. like there's yeah there's a there's very good reasons to be very antsy about it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, what makes me less antsy, to be perfectly honest, mm-hmm. is that 
so much of it is going to happen in the Green Lantern books. And I, I trust Robert Venditti as a writer. Mm. I think his Valiant stuff is what's won me over for that. Mm. Um, and so, yeah, I, I'm, I find myself really nervously into the idea of it happening. Mm-hmm. Um, and I kind of love the way that the Green Lantern books have been building up to this for a while. I, I just didn't, it, it just did not occur to me at all. Mm-hmm. Like, I like the idea that what we know about that storyline is very logical, given what's been happening. And I, like, they did the source wall, and I didn't even put it together. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Cool. Um, their, their whole, uh, the, the Lights Out storyline, which I feel was like a year ago now. Uh-huh. Uh, the, like, oh no, we're running out of Green Lantern juice. Right. Um, ended with them approaching the source wall and crossing over. And then coming back and being like, well, that was fucked up. I don't even know what that was. And huh. I didn't put it together that it was the source wall. Wow. That's pretty great. That, you know, that... so, you know. So like when they announced it, I was like, oh, fuck, that was the source wall. Of course. Of course the, <laughs> the new gods are attached to this. And I like it ties in the cosmologies mm-hmm. much more than I like, you know, Jeff Johns's. I'm just going to make Darkseid this intergalactic heavy who's now at war with the Anti-Monitor because that makes no fucking sense. Oh, God. I... that uh... That's what makes me nervous. That makes me nervous. The whole, like, there's going to be the Darkseid war makes mm-hmm. me nervous. Mm-hmm. But, like, the, the Green Lantern stuff, I'm, I'm on board with. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Didn't you think the Anti-Monitor would have the Anti-Life Equation? Since he's got everything anti, that's, that's what he has. Oh, I, we still don't know that that's not where they're going to go. <laughs> well, don't don't so forget. Scary. <laughs> right now, with the exception of Infinity Man and the Forever People, Darkseid, as we've seen him, is not after the anti-life equation at all. Oh, right. Well, I say, oh, right, like I actually read all six issues of he, that, he, that suit Justice League thing. I did not. Yeah. He's looking for his daughter. What? Really? Yeah. yeah. What? Oh, yes. my God. What? Wait, that, hold on. That is, that is the... The Jeff Johns new MacGuffin for Darkseid. Oh man, really? Yes. So, so Antimonitor might have the anti-life equation, and they might that might be how, how they bring it in. Yeah, Darkseid's daughter is like the MacGuffin for the Vibe series as well. <clears throat> really? Wow. How so? Did like Vibe lender twenty dollars, and now he needs to get his twenty dollars <laughs> back? Or? Yeah, that's exactly what it is, yeah. Um, No, it's that the Darkseid's daughter is on Earth and was being held by uh, DC Shields, whatever it's called, Argus. Not Checkmate? Uh, uh, No, because there's there's so many. (laughs) And Spiral in Grayson as well. Um, I have to say, if I can interrupt really quickly, I should mention, thanks to your review, I picked up the first two issues of uh, Grayson and I enjoyed them. Just as you said. It's kind of weird, right? Mm-hmm. I was kind of like, huh. It's a Dick Grayson being a spy book, and yet it's good. Yeah. Well, yeah, in part because for everything that you mentioned, but people, you should go read Graham's review. I'll have to link it and uh, in the show notes. But uh, it's it's really, it really is an incredibly fun, the fact that it picks up the various Grant Morrison's little bits and pieces there and sort of makes them into a very fun sort of poppy little thing that, you know, I think Morrison himself would be pleased, pleased by, uh, was, is actually quite fun. It really is. 
Um, so yes, I'm sorry. So they even joke about the number of like secret spy organizations in the DCU. I think in the in the second issue of that or something. Yes, because there's far too fucking many. Yes. Uh, but yes, yeah, so Dark Side's daughter's in in the Vibe series as well, or rather, is the MacGuffin. I don't think you actually see her in the Vibe series because mm-hmm. uh, you know at some point they're going to be like a Dark Side's daughter is whoever fucking Pandora. I no, because Gypsy Gypsy's be been taken. No, Gyps- Gypsy is is also in Vibe series. Mm. Um, and you know what? You know what DC should do if they're super ballsy, like to be super ballsy about it, is Darkseid's daughter. Technically, you would think you know is like not Mister Miracle, but Miracle Woman from the Miracle Man storyline, and then just act as if they totally all that stuff is public domain because of how fucked up the copyright is and tie dark side <laughs> in with Mar- miracle man slash marvel man and all that and just and just just flip them the flags you know because <laughs> seriously what would you do first That's off it's more or less established that it's in the public domain and is in it's, and and everything's insane but uh, also miracle man's a ripoff of captain marvel that. what's that hmm I don't think that has been established yet. Really? I thought... Yeah, I'm fairly uh, sure that uh, Marvel has a fairly strong legal claim to Marvel Man and Miracle Man at this point. Yeah, I suppose. Well, think of it like this. They bought McAngelo's share of it. Uh, Mm -hmm. The British copyright laws mean that Alan Moore and the artists and Neil Gaiman and the artists own their work in that series. And they've sold... Marvel as well. Agreed, agreed. They can't touch those. Yeah, no. But I, I think, I think the idea is that maybe Marvel Man has has lapsed into the the public domain. Is is uh, Marvel Man certainly hasn't. Marvel Man is owned by Marvel because they bought it from McAngelo. Yeah, I suppose. All right, I'll take your word for it. I know you want it not to be the case. Well, no, I mean, I don't, I don't, I, I don't necessarily have a horse in, in the race per se. I seem to recall that there were some arguments being made that because of poor copyright retention, Marvel Man is in the public domain. It's just the specific iterations and creations of Marvel Man. So, like, Marvel owns Mick Anglo's Marvel Man stories, and they own the rights or however it works out to Neil Gaiman and Alan Moore's stories. But I, I sort of feel like there might be a case to be, I feel like there would have been a case had been made that Marvel man, the character in and of itself, the process of copyright became so bungled that it's the equivalent of like night of the living dead that basically anyone can basically put out a copy of, you know, it's just, you you can't do the specific stuff that we're we're done with the character. But from your stunned silence of disbelief and and uh incredulousness, it's probably not the case, is what I'm gonna say. <laughs> I don't know that bombshell because we have a hard stop. <laughs> well we do, we have a hard stop. No, you're absolutely right. We gotta go. We cannot we can't do this. I'm just so, I'm just I think it's hilarious that we're like Ending that's with Jeff in flames. That's, yeah, that's, let, let's call it quits there. <laughs> that's what I'm going to say for now on. In future podcasts, I'm going to yeah. wait until you say something, and I'm going to be like, okay, it's time to go. Right, exactly. Just got, okay, here's the, here, here it is. Mouth, you know, foot is in mouth, and on that bombshell, yeah. So, good night, Brooklyn. You've been terrific.
<laughs> there will be no encore. Uh, we'll see you in two weeks, <laughs> everyone. Uh, thanks Wait, for tuning nope. in. What no. Jeff means to say is, uh, if you listen to us on iTunes, thank you very much. If you listen to us on oh, Stitcher, geez, where we now are, thank you very much. Uh, feel free to leave comments. Feel free to leave reviews. Please, in fact, leave reviews. That would be lovely. Mm-hmm. Um, you can find show notes for this podcast on waitwhatpodcast.com, where you will also uh, find a review from me and a review or, and or essay from Mr. Jeffrey Lester uh, every week. That's right. We are also on Tumblr, where I'm trying to update when I'm not working my little butt off, uh, which is waitwhatpod.tumblr.com. We are on Twitter at Jeff. Uh, We sure are. No, 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 wait. That's not right. We're at Twitter (laughs) at waitwhatpodcast. Yes. I had to guess. I'm like, I don't know. That was hilarious. You know, uh, yeah, we are. We're, yeah. we're Twitter at Wait Well Podcast. Um, there are numerous ways to reach us. All of those work. And also emailing uh, Jeff's at Wait Well Podcast at gmail.com. Yes. And Graham is at Graham at Wait What Podcast. Uh, oh, gmail. and Jeff yes. at Wait well Podcast.com as well. Yeah, that's right. Th- those those emails work, people. Yes. You should stuff. Yeah. Um, thank you very much for your kind patient listening that's right during this this uh actually briefer than normal but still over two hours podcast yeah exactly exactly maybe that our podcast is a bit long yeah um i don't know well you you tell us are we are is this too short was this too long do we need to go longer do we need to go shorter let's let's know your thoughts people tumblr twitter emails wait what podcast at gmail.com or jeff at wait what podcast.com or gramatweetwhatpodcast.com let us know patrons out the, on our patreon page uh, patreon.com slash podcast. by all means go go let us know your thoughts they matter to us they, yes and uh, as always you were saying is very much appreciated for all yes. our sarcasm we genuinely mean that part yes that that is the one part we are not bullshit actually there's more but I mean you know there, like there, there's maybe like three parts non bullshit tonight, seven parts bullshit. Let's yeah, yeah, yeah. It's it's tough to be what the formula is exactly, but it's there's usually more than one. Yeah, so there, right. there's some sincerity in here somewhere. Anyway, we'll be back in uh, two weeks. Indeed, I almost said next week. That's not the case. We'll be back <laughs> in two weeks. <laughs> While I try and get over the fact that apparently my brain has turned to mush, and mine's now, been that way for years. 